Welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. Today on the 525 Records podcast is the founder and owner of Sly Records, Eric Bush. One of the very first things that he put out on Sly Records in the late 90s of Salem, Oregon, is the song that you're listening to now. I've had it stuck in my head for over a month now because it's so damn good. And uh, it was written by Matt Fargo of Pretty to Look At. It's off their debut release entitled Folks I Know, and you can get it for free on the Sly Records Bandcamp. We talk about it right away because uh, I was just enamored by all that music. Uh, these are incredible songs, and the lyrics are amazing, the melodies are amazing. And I just couldn't believe, like, who is this guy? Who is this kid who wrote all these songs and then you guys put them out on cassette tape? I mean, it's episode five of the 525 Records podcast. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Josh, welcome to the 525 Records Podcast. Hello. When did you first realize Matt Fargo was a genius? <laughs> uh, that's a long story, you know. Um, Matt's an interesting guy. He, uh, he and I were really good friends in middle school. And he, at the time, a lot of people will forget this about him, but he was a highly competitive uh, tennis player and also very good at chess. And we were really good friends. And then we were kind of... We drifted around in high school and through long story short, we basically link, kind of linked back up in our senior year and um, he would play some songs for me and they were out of this world. Uh, and he was also um, a guy in high school that he and I shared a lot of the same likes and there was not a lot of people that were into a lot of the same bands and things. And we just um, got along. But yeah, as a... And that being said, as the guy that I was in a band with that I was also sharing songs with, it was an extremely humbling experience. <laughs> um, he's one of the first people I ever saw that could pick up an instrument and just do whatever he wanted with it. And especially we were only 17, 18 at the time. That song you just heard there is John Gardner. It's off the very first Pretty to Look At album, uh, a tape released on Sly Records. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to start Sly Records. Um. I think for all of this, it's really important to remember the times, right? So we're talking, this is back in 1996, and the whole idea was just to try. There were some labels that I had purchased music from that really inspired me. I remember I bought this um, cassette compilation up in Portland, and it was packaged in a sandwich bag. And it was a real eye-opening thing. And that must have been like 94, 95. And it was just that idea of just you could do it. And that's what I liked, especially about growing up in the mid 90s, was that that was today you have that with Bandcamp. But back then, that was kind of a new idea that you could just like take a boombox, basically record something and put it out. Um, so it was that label called Rectus Records and another one called Union Pole, where I bought <clears throat> a couple things from Union Pole and they had a catalog that had like 30 cassettes in it. And I was like, that's wild. Um, and that was kind of the idea. We were like, there's nothing like this in Salem. Um and even if nothing happened with it, it was still fun to kind of almost kind of like play acting. Like when you remember like in high school and you would like make up a band name and make like a t-shirt before you even had the band. We're like, let's just start a label and put something out. And, you know, we never sold a lot, but uh, the stuff got around. Um, and the idea at the time was I was and still am heavily into Sylvester Stallone. And Matt was a really big Sly and the Family Stone fan. And so Sly Records seemed natural. And the idea was, yeah, just to put out tapes and we mostly gave them out to friends and stuff. But my, my, a big thing for me was just building a catalog. For some reason, that excited me. So if somebody had a tape or somebody recorded something, I would go to Kinko's, make the cover artwork and like, let's just put it out and give it a label number. I thought that was the most fun part of it. So being inspired by other labels, putting out cassette tapes, was the folks I know by Pretty to Look At, was that the very first Sly Records cassette release? <laughs> so almost. So the funny, uh, Matt and I both agreed. I think I was probably more of a driving force in this part, but we would always talk about how the labels that we were really into, probably like Kill Rock Stars and some other ones like that. A lot of times their first or sometimes only release, you know, would be like a compilation of what was happening in their town. And so to try to like look real or like look legit, that's what we wanted to do. The hard part was that there really wasn't a whole lot of cool stuff going on in Salem, Oregon at the time. But through that and through my friends and Matt's friends and friends of friends, we got enough 
songs together from people that we, our first tape was like a 16 song compilation. Um, and I think Matt and I are probably on about half of it just to fill it out, but they were like legit distinct bands, but that was like our first release. And yeah, I want to say folks I know is right close after that. Um, and that tape's funny because Matt and I had been basically, we were a pond cover band. And if anyone out there has never listened to pond, boy uh for us in the in salem at least in the northwest like me and my friends that was that 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 band is gigantic and matt and i were big fans of theirs and so when he was in another band he and i would get together and just play these like pond cover songs um for the most part and then over like the summer he just randomly came to me and was like hey i recorded all these songs with our friend dusty and that's what folks i know is and matt's kind of a guy like that like we were in a band and then he just recorded this thing on his own. It was like, Hey, I have this, we should play these. So that's not even me on the drums there. That's Matt, uh, playing his, uh, poor drumming as he would admit. But yeah, he and our friend Dusty recorded that, I think over a couple weeks, um, just in a bedroom somewhere. And then that was the beginning of us starting to not play cover songs, but playing all Matt songs, which are great. I'm, I'm the biggest Matt Fargo fan that there is. And then at some point he moves to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So all throughout high school, Matt had studied Japanese. And when we went to our first year of college, he went to a university in Salem that has a whole Japanese exchange program with another college. And so he lived in the Japanese dorms. He was totally fluent. And then he, the whole plan was he was going to go over there for like a semester or whatnot. And when he left, he kind of really never came back. Um, his, his plans always kept on getting longer. So when he left, then he came back and then he was like, I'm going right back. And he would be gone for sometimes years at a time. And so the stuff that we recorded, like the, um, that last pre to look at AP, I believe was recorded on one of his breaks when he would come back to the States. Um, and so for me, I always wanted to continue the band, but man, he just, he fully leaned in, uh, (laughs) to being Japanese and he lived over there for a long time. Um, and he's back in the States now, but yeah. At some point he winds up doing demos and getting kind of a, a tentative deal with Virgin Japan. So dude, I, <laughs> so Matt, Matt Fargo is kind of a, he's a almost legendary character. He's, which is funny. Cause when you know him, he's the most humble human being. He's the kindest, most humble human being on the planet, but he always finds himself in these new experiences. Um, and one of them was, yeah, when he went to Japan and I, You'd have to ask him how it actually went down, but basically he somehow landed himself a deal on the Japanese wing of Virgin. And this was in 99, 2000. So like record labels were still a big deal. Um, And so, and it was all based upon, he had somehow got this song to them. It's one of our songs called uh, My Painted Masterpiece, which is actually an amazing, it's an amazing song, right? So he, so he recorded like a Japanese version of this and they were like, we love it give us more songs like this and you know we'll get you going and in true matt fashion he just he refused to do what they wanted uh so he recorded a bunch of our more like up tempo rock songs just with japanese and you can find those on that on that let's relive the glory days i don't think that's all the ones that he did but those are the ones that i have um where he was just kind of like no i'm not gonna record all these love songs that, that you want uh and kind of blew that and then ended up doing music for PlayStation two games over there. That, that whole let's relive the glory days is amazing. It's, it is kind of, it's a mixture of uh, some of the stuff he guys did. And then also it seems like he recorded on his own over in Japan. 
and then there's these like we listened to that song john gardner there's a japanese version where he's singing the entire song in japanese that my painted masterpiece which is one of my favorite songs you know it's on it's off the first ep and it's also now there's a japanese version of the same exact song and for him it's interchangeable and honestly those years when he was coming back to the states there was definitely a time um, where he almost was struggling with English in a way because he 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 just lived in Japan for so long, so when he would come back, his English was almost a little bit broken, which was kind of fun. That Japanese John Gardner is great because it's actually two guitar tracks, and it's really interesting because he does this this little harmony lick. I'm gonna play it right now. <laughs> Those little harmonies are so amazing. And if you told me that was a white kid from Salem, <laughs> I mean, if, if you if you didn't know any of this backstory and you played that and you said, all right, you got $100, you got a bet. Is this a white kid from Salem or is this a Japanese guy? I mean, it is flawless Japanese. Yeah. Well, and he, you know, and, he, and to that end, he ended up uh, publishing books in Japanese. So for a while he was making his or making some sort of living uh, where he would not only he published like a book of, I think, American slang, but in Japanese. But he also really liked uh, translating books. So for a while he would translate. Um, I can't remember which way he would do it, if it was from Japanese to English or from English to Japanese. But um, yeah, his his mastery of that, of the language and the culture is insane. Um, the funny thing that I always want to say, too, and I want to get this in, is being in a band. So I was the drummer for Pretty to Look At, and I would sing back up. Um, when right before a show, he would panic and basically X almost all of our own songs because he would say the audience will be bored. That was always his big thing. The audience is going to be bored. So like, I think John Gardner, we may have played that once live because it's a beautiful song, right? But if you hear Matt tell it, it's boring. And so we would end up playing generally covers um, because Matt was really obsessed with like, it's a boring song. The audience is going to get bored. It's the same part three times. And even though he would, you know, he even though he would write these beautiful songs, he was always airing on like, oh, let's just cover like three feelings songs or something like that. So it was kind of that was a frustrating part. That was a frustrating end of that band is you had this guy that was writing amazing songs and people would come to see us play them. And then we'd play, you know, an unwound cover on an acoustic guitar and drums with brushes. So <laughs> I always like to throw that in with him. It, it's like he's got all these hallmarks of really great artists, you know, like he is just it's a side thing. He paints a masterpiece and then, oh, I'm bored. I'm bored. And I move, I've moved on from that. Absolutely. Um, My Painted Masterpiece is a great example of that. He hated playing that live. He thought it was the most boring song. Um, He wrote it, if I recall, because a girlfriend he had requested that he write her a love song. And he he wrote that in about 15 minutes, if I recall, just kind of picked up a guitar and wrote that. And to him, that was kind of lesser. But yeah, he is. I happen to have always found myself with these musicians, especially that are, um, to your point, like great artists that are 
really wonderful artist without knowing it, right? Or without um, Matt, like I said, is the most humble person and would tell you that he's not this great artist, that he's just a hack guitar player, which is crazy. And and believe me, as a guy who was teaching himself guitar at the time, that's a really frustrating uh, experience to go through. I'd be like, hey, here's my song with like four bar chords this time. And he'd be like, cool, here's a song where I never stop moving my fingers. And I was like, ah, and he was my biggest supporter, though. You know, he was always telling me that my songs were great and even let me put one of them on one of our albums. So he's he's that he's he's that guy. There is an, an amazing amount of really interesting guitar work. He's doing harmonics, those harmonies on John Gardner, for instance. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you with Matt, um, especially, you know, uh, and once again, he'd probably he'd be shy for me to tell you this, but it was really Elliot Smith. Um, when either or came out, Matt got that record and just listened to it obsessively in his dorm. And that's kind of what changed. Um, that was kind of his goal. And one thing that we both really loved were bands. I guess Elliot Smith's not a band, but Elliot Smith, Archers of Loaf is another good example, Unwound, of people that use really creative guitar work or like rhythms or what or whatnot, but aren't doing it to show off, right? So like we had, not like in the metal way, right? It's not like Ying Wee Malmsteen, who's just like, look at what I can do. You had some of these musicians that were like hiding beautiful work into really good songs. But you have Elliot Smith who was writing like Angelus, for example, which is one of Matt's favorites was incredible. And somebody like my wife loves that song without that. Right. She, she couldn't tell you if it was a complex song. Um, and that was the stuff that he was kind of after, especially on the second one. Um, you can hear him like tuning his guitar down so he can hit all the high notes and everything. That was a big thing for him. When I was making my notes, I was like, oh, who does he remind me of that's like big and famous, you know, influences that, and this, I, I wrote down Nick Drake. It was, it was like if Nick Drake, Elliot Smith, and John Lennon had a baby, and then they gave him a four track and no money whatsoever. And I always thought, God, if this kid at the time had a record deal, a budget, a producer, like, I mean, the sky, the sky could have been the limit, you know, I think. Right. But, well, we say that, but then he actually had that opportunity, right? So I, I think that really, I mean, I don't think Matt ever, a, ever wanted that and probably, and I don't think either of us wanted it, to be honest. I wanted to keep the band going just because I really liked it. It was one of, when you're a drummer, for all you drummers out there, it's a unique position because you have to really be a fan of the music because you don't really get a lot of creative input aside from you know, the rhythm, but also I like arranging, but it depends on who you're in a band with. Right. Um, but you have to be a real big fan. And so I was always a big fan of his first, but neither of us had a drive. You know what I mean? Like, I know it seems great. I know it seems like we did all this stuff with like setting up this label and had all this drive, but really, I mean, we were both some of the laziest musicians out there. I would have little pockets of energy and that was about it. Um, but yeah, I, I do wish that we could have made more music because I feel like the stuff that we did right at the end was really interesting, but it just wasn't to be, you know, he had other, he had, he had other stuff to do. I just, I love, you know, the lo-fi recordings when they're so filled with like uh, compositional talent and passion. When you can make the recording quality not even a factor, where yeah. you can hear tape hiss for days and wobbling and, you know, there's shitty gear and horrible equipment, but it doesn't matter because the song is so good. That's always like, you know, what piques my interest in a and big, we, big way. 
Yeah, and we were really into all of that. So, like, in the 90s, I know, especially for me, well, and, and for Matt, too, like, Kill Rock Stars and K Records were big things for us. One, because they were close, right? They were up in Washington. And also because of that, it was like, you didn't have to sound perfect. I've never been a technical genius. Um, I am not musically trained. I'm not recording trained. All of it's just kind of picked up. And I'm a big fan of that, right? It's making everything as accessible as it can be. Um I think music and recording for years was kind of held as this, like only experts could do it. And I hated that, you know, and I loved what, especially like what K records did was like, no, nah, you can just hook up a boombox and put out a cassette. And to your point, if it's a good song, it comes through right now on top of that, I like to make good recordings as well. So I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to say like, I'm just pro that, but it was nice in high school to be able to say, yeah, let's just make a tape. Screw it. Um, and pretty to look at, you know, we never had a humongous fan base, but we definitely, among other musicians, we definitely would have a lot of people that would come to those shows. Matt always had his fans for sure. Uh, our second album, the one that I was actually finally going to play on that we had a lot of songs worked up. Um, our friend, Eric Alley, who is also a wonderful musician has played a lot in the Northwest. He was in King Black Acid and some other bands, but he was a really good friend of Matt and I's in Salem. And he bought uh, a digital eight track. Basically you record on the digital eight track into a zip disc. And in 1999, this was like mind blowing to us that he had this thing. And we recorded that whole second album by basically giving Eric Alley booze so the price of the day session would be a bottle usually of slow gin which is what he was really into so we'd bring over a bottle of that i don't know how matt bought them because we were 19 but uh we would bring that over and that was our kind of pay for the day and we would just spend like eight hours at eric alley's house and a lot of that was figuring this thing out was figuring out this digital eight track well uh i happen to have a little bit of experience recording on i think the same exact digital eight track it's a roland vs840 it was the one that i had also 100 megabyte zip disks which would fill up insanely quick yes you had there was the first time you had like these inboard digital effects which you know were cool at the time but now they're you know pretty 8-bit or whatever you would call them uh, but what you wound up with is all these zip disks it was almost as limiting as a tape machine where you'd run out of tape eventually you know those zip disks were not cheap you had to buy them and you know it, it was very it was about as close to recording on tape as you could get for those that don't know, like the late 90s into the early 2000s, just technology was moving at such a weird clip. And so it went from all of a sudden, like cassette was the thing to just one day it was like you had to have a CD and people weren't really messing with cassettes. So really, by the time that I had my my game together enough to start putting out like tapes with like color covers and stuff, people had already moved on. Right. So people were expecting CDs and you couldn't really do it yet. I mean, I remember with that second um, pre to look at album, you know, to get it from the eight track and just recording on that thing was a beast anyways, but then to actually get it onto a CD, I mean, Matt happened to know somebody in the like audio department at his college and the three of us went in with the eight track and all of those zip discs like late at night and basically had to like sneak in there. And it took us about, I think four hours to get that onto one disc. And then I had this like CD master, and it was like this piece of gold because that was our master. And then we dubbed cassettes off of that. And I had friends that helped me do it that would just sit there and you had to play the thing live, right? You had to sit there for the full hour to make one tape. That was the worst part about it is that yeah. at the end of all that, you still had to like kind of go into a studio. Whereas at least with a four track, you probably had a tape deck and you could just RCA cable into it. 
with those yeah. early Rollins. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, Korg, which I happen to have one, it's a Korg D1200, Korg came out, and then they started putting CD burners in the actual digital aids with big internal hard drives. But before that, on those old Rollins, at the end of the day, you still had to go to a studio. Yeah, yeah. Not fun. Uh, and those discs were expensive. Yeah. And I have like 50 of them laying around, you know, just because I could only, I could, I figured out by the end, I could maybe maximize four songs per disc. And that was, that was playing fast and loose. I happened to interview your brother for the last episode. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, the uh, legendary Portland CAC is uh, fronted by Eric and uh, Mr. Walkenfuss, they're both brothers. The uh, Nobody else was doing what you guys were doing. That first CAC record was so huge. Uh, the Chopsticks shows. We talked about a lot of this on the podcast last week, but what are some of your favorite memories? Um, I think, you know, the that was the one, I was thinking about this, the one, that was the one album that I really, I was telling you earlier about how I have, I have little pockets of energy, and that was certainly one. For some reason, that year just happened to work out i bought the eight track i used it for a while before we started recording that and with cac it did not start out as the end goal being an album and doing all that it was really just um messing around and you'll as a as a guy who knows about gear i think you'll find this interesting so i moved to portland i bought i i did not know how to play a keyboard very well um matt would leave his at my house and that's kind of what i would mess around with but then when i moved to portland obviously i didn't take that keyboard so i went to fred meyer and i bought a keyboard that was i forget the name of it but it was this blue basic keyboard that was designed to be like a dj keyboard so it was like i think it was called the djx that was the keyboard that i used to basically make all of the cac beats um i used the drum samples from that and pretty much all the keyboard sounds were all from that. And so that first year was just me messing with that keyboard and making beats. And then, you know, we would spend the day rapping over it. It was only once we had like four or five songs that we were like, hey, we could probably make this work. You know, we could probably do an album. Um, and I, for some reason, just took a lot of control over it as far as I would never give Brad mixes of songs. Uh, my, my big worry was that if we made a couple songs and burned them out onto a CD, then we'd just kind of lose interest and be like, well, we have these three songs, we'd play them for friends and that would be it, right? So I never, no one ever heard it until it came out. And so probably my biggest favorite memory from that was probably that first show because people didn't hate it, right? Like we had pressed these CDs, made this whole thing, um, and then it actually worked. Um, if you watch the video of that first show, we're both really nervous because pretty much every single person that we know is there. And that was part of it. Cause I wouldn't let anybody hear it. So people knew that Brad and I were going to get up there and rap. That was pretty much what they knew. And in 2000, that was kind of, um, I don't want to say that was like the craziest thing, but that was not to your point. That wasn't like a normal thing. Dare I say it was daring, bold, extremely risky i mean you guys you had to bring it because if you were whack at all it was going to be a train wreck up there and you know it was must have been a lot of pressure and the one of the first shows i saw you guys at was at bam's halloween party which is uh, recently uploaded by walk and fuss which is great because it's like a time machine you get to go back and look at it but you can clearly see there's some times where you know, you, you guys had more words per song than probably anybody else in the game, you know, and just sometimes 
Brad would have to feed you that first line. And then once you had it, you would be like a racehorse leaving the gate. You would not miss another word in the entire song. I always thought that was really impressive. If you listen, there's kind of a nod to that. And that's absolutely true. Uh, There was at least once every show I would. And after a while, I got to just be the look. I'd give Brad the look and he would just say like the first word. And then I just go. Um, There's a there's an inside joke about that on the heel turn. I forget which song it is, but I say uh, the first line is the hardest. When I got it, I'm good Uh, because and they they still are that way. Right. If if, if you prompt and I'm not going to do it, but if you prompted me with like the first word or two from any CAC song, my brain can just regurgitate it. But I'm telling you, live on stage, half the time it won't it won't come. It's um, one of those things where if if you weren't like near the stage or on the stage or particularly looking, you'd never even know, you know. But if you well, were close at all, you could see it happen. It was amazing. It, we got better about hiding it for sure. I I noticed that too on the Bam record on the Bam show, and that was literally our second show. So our second show, you know, we're dressed up for Halloween and playing in our friend's backyard, um, and. A uh, thing that I wish was said on the video is I remember this, we couldn't really move. So the setup was on this rickety stage that Bam had or Bam and somebody had constructed our CD, which was our backing track was on that stage. But um, if you moved at all, the CD would skip and you even hear it happen, I think once or twice during the show. So talk about doubly awkward because we were really nervous and really as a rapper and it, we kind of figured this out later there's nothing else going on, right? There's no guitar to watch. There's nothing. And so you are the entertainment and you find out real quick. A lot of people aren't that entertained by the rapping itself. Some people are, but um, so to sit there and have to put on a show and not be able to move. I remember that was kind of like a nightmare scenario. Such a big part of your guys's whole stage persona was you guys jumping around doing crazy jumps and, you know, really visually active and moving around quite a bit. So it is ex- extremely weird to see you guys dead still trying not to make the CD player skip. Yeah. And if you watch, I mean, shoot, that first show at Chopsticks, you know, I, I've always been a drummer. I'm a drummer first and I've played lots of shows as a drummer. And one of the best parts about being a drummer, as long as you don't mess up, nobody really notices you, right? Except other drummers. You, you, you always know the one guy that's in the house. That's the drummer. Cause he's staring at you. And, and I'm usually that guy. So like when I watch live shows still, I mainly focused on the drummer. That's the most fun part for me. Um, But aside from that, you're kind of in the background. And so doing CAC was a really weird experience because aside from singing karaoke a handful of times, I'd never been just standing out there with the microphone. And I got, I feel like we both got better at it. Brad had always been a front man and whatever music he had done. So for him, it was a little bit more natural. Uh, But for me, it was, yeah, it was a new experience. And I wish we had more of our later shows on video because I feel like they were definitely more exciting, right? That first one is us just getting through it. Um, and it actually works, which is crazy to me. Somebody needs some credit here. Mark's ex-wife, Megan, she was the king of throwing parties. Like we, she really got into it. Her and Monica carved all these pumpkins. They got hay. Somehow they got hay and they figured out, uh, I don't know, her uncle or somebody figured all those, those like scaffolding poles and, you know, getting the lights set up. I mean, it was, it was a big, intense labor project to get that show ready. And that was, that was one epic party. I'm, uh, I'm glad I got to be there. I will give Megan serious props on that. Not only for that, also she, uh, from what I, from what I remember, I think she's the only person that has a real CAC inspired tattoo. But yeah, I went to a couple Halloween parties at BAMS and those were the only parties I've legit been to that were like the parties in the movies, right? Where you show up and there's like a hundred people and there's props. Um, it was like being in like a John Cusack movie. It was crazy. 
and you know one of the one of the crazier things too is on a lot of those CC recordings, you guys brought in a lot of other MCs to do cameos. It was a real ensemble. Uh, you know, in addition to recording and documenting, you know, half and half behind the camera on all those shows, he's on a couple of songs. Uh, Nate, um, Bam. There's one song off the heel turn I think really encapsulates the whole ensemble. So I don't know how you feel about this song, but I'm gonna play "Pardon Me, Patui." Breathing fire tonight. I got my finger caught, and I couldn't touch the mic, so they cut it off. For this one, we assembled the whole empty. Have you tossing in the towel like me, Joe Green? The lyrics so bold that they're seen from miles. Call my verbal style, we're projectile. Can we be this good? It does not make sense, but we're proving when it's like the two pocket defense. I'm a party on the move, like discos do. You couldn't muster because they don't have a clue. I am rapping telegram. I tear around your land like the son of Sam. I'm the master of the game, like Captain Numaqua. And I'm blowing up like Kurt Pavakwa. Started locally and killed it vocally, and now we're on top like it's supposed to be. Oatmeal and I flow for real, like Monty Hall when I make a deal. I don't grab the steel, I don't grab the Glock I take four balls and I take a walk Oh, Kendo, we're not your friend though A baseball star like Nintendo Stand up, double, know that you're in trouble A sick boy, but not the kind in a bubble I say it's my moves, and you hope that I'm wrong But you can build me up just like a goop song I'm not a mall rat, but I'm all that Call me daylight savings when I fall back I'm not tall and fat, cause I'm tall and lean I got a deep history like Holocene You're all so mean when I'm all so nice I'm not a killer, but a thug like Vincent Price Tailpipes, a handful of jalapenos out in the trail dive A bird on a wire in an empty nest I can find you in the zone with a barrel on my chest I just got dumped and I thought it would move But I'm one Nathan under a groove It's the ultimate fight, I'm getting it on Like some weird hybrid of Cujo and Khan Don't seek out spot, launch out of control Cuter than a triple singing that King Cole I was a chopster before a napster And I know why it's called a telecaster Has the shoulders above, master blaster I'm in love like Jimmy with Cynthia Blaster And I like carbs in a shotgun way Go with walker bus, walker bus, don't roll away I'm such a chatterbox and I shatter rocks Digging into you like a baddest box Lace the spikes, face the mic Rigging you up like I was calling a strike Lenny Dykstra, but not a southpaw Mouthful of words, not a mouthful of jaw Know how you saw what I say so deaf Not getting the axe like Pink Lady and Jeff Like Chuck Barris when I'm running the gong The guy sang the song when he sung along It's like the Happy Mondays when I write for luck And I'm over the top when I drive a truck Going through you like ass through a funnel Words pouring out and they flow like a runnel Like a rivulet when I spit my bit Watch me stand and play while you sit and quit don't dance Cause we don't give them a chance In my hitman dreams right for romance It's all happenstance I'm drunk on the moon, double nickels on the down, just like D Boone. Just like dude, my name is a killing word. Run the CSE, it's okay to be a nerd. Occurred to me today, we've come a long way. Triple date, flying V like Gordon Bombay. Took a stay for the summer at the wannabe manor. Live the pirate side with Danny and Joey Tanner. Cut it out. Up over beats, like a circle jerk, cause we're wild in the streets. Fantastic, like the first sound by Wham. I can't go to sleep like the Wu Tang Clan. Number one super guy, like Hong Kong Fooey. Donna Tanuki, pardon me, Fatui. Daily. And I don't mean bling. I mean the fussing that I do directly over my sink. I mean the broccoli that I had for my dinner last week. I mean the stutter stuck in my teeth. Because my mother gave words back in the day. I'm a smooth operator, but I'm no sardine. I got a little deeper voice and not quite as cute. But if there's nobody in my bed, well, I can knock my own boots. I mean, I'm tiptoeing with slow mo for modo. Coming to clean, fill up my jeans, turn on the back door. Before you even got time to realize it, you can't fabric my rap. Now you want to supersize it. Have it your way, have it my way. I'm about to make you cool. Like the WA. I give him that you're dead way, way back in the day. I'm gonna hand this rabbit and throw it to K. Guess who's at it again? Me and no spin verbally said trips. Skins flow through an ink pen. Coolest cucumbers from a collective. We're calling all composers to be cool and connected. 
respected. Let's make it known that it's all disrespected by those who choose to be unique and also eclectic. Now, as a man with different methods, check out my brain, the pain is safe. No house clown, no records, quick to reject this, aren't you? Then you want to know it will take more than an for me to be a goner. Man, this industry is so clogged up, it will take like a promise of courtesy flush. Every guest down the toilet, for we have been spoiled with instead of enjoyment. Music full of disappointment. No longer push to the rear, for we appear as the latest bad boys trying to disclaim it in your ear. The Eastport Warehouse. <laughs> the last, the last uh, MC you heard on that track is a guy named KB who worked at the Eastport Warehouse with you and Mark. Yes, I called Mark yesterday. Mark is Bam for anybody that doesn't know. He's also on that track right before KB. Um, well, first, I would just like to say from a recording standpoint, that song is amazing on so many levels because not only does every MC have his main verse, but there's also sometimes two or, th- you know, maybe one or two um, backup kind of hype man tracks, you know, backup uh, verses to mix all of those and make them consistent. Everybody's got a different voice, you know, you got to use the same mic and it still sounds different. And uh, it it is a mixing challenge and it is so smooth and there's so much continuity there. It's amazing. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And you would never know that that song took probably like what, six months, right? To get together. Yeah. It's funny. That's actually a beef of mine when I listen to rap now because nobody gets together in the studio anymore for their posse songs or even guest spots. And yeah, it's a big sore spot with me when, I, when you could tell, right. When it's like, clearly somebody recorded this with a totally different mic and a setup. It's just lazy. So Eastport warehouse is kind of where everything really got going. So, um, sea dog, who's the first rapper on there. He and I have been best friends since grade school. Um, still are. So sea dog, uh, lived with us for a time in high school. And he and I just had this idea of like the CAC, we should be this rap group. And that was just kind of it. Um, when I moved to Portland, I was working at the Salem warehouse and I just happened to transfer to Eastport warehouse. And I don't know if I can describe just the gutter area that the Eastport warehouse was in the year 1999, 2000. 82nd and Holgate. We lived on 75th and Holgate. So, you know, um, Right down the street. Yeah. So East, it, I think it's changed now, that neighborhood. But Eastport Warehouse, when we would look out, the, we, we were in a Walmart parking lot. And when we would look out the window across the street, we called it the, it was like the trifecta or something. It was like, but there was a strip club, an alcohol shop, and a porn shop all in the same building. And that's what was right across the street from us. And there was a bus stop out front. So just working there was an adventure. I... I mean, we had so much shoplifting. I could tell you three hours of stories just from working there, but I won't. Uh, but that's where I met Bam. Uh, Bam is Mark, but I, I will, I'd call him Bam. Uh, that name, by the way, simply came from the fact that at Warehouse, you had to put your initials um, when you logged in and somebody else had already been MAB. So Mark had to switch his around. And so whenever you would be talking to Mark on his computer, it would say Bam. So we all just called him Bam. Um, and then I insisted that that be his rap name. So I met Bam. We had a lot of the same taste. Bam has wonderful taste in uh, rap music, right? Um, so he and I got along on that level. And then KB also worked with, worked with us there. And KB was a legit rapper so he had if you look him up he is on a compilation called triple beam circus and i think it's the third one like we sold it at warehouse so what's crazy to us is we were working with this dude and we would sell a compilation album that he was on and like tupac's on it uh and so that was so that to us was wild so to me getting getting kb getting kb was kind of important just because 
um, he was interested in being a rapper. And I was like, well, dude, I'm doing this rap project. You should come and, you know, be on it. Um, one of the inside jokes, by the way, on the CAC album, and you would know this, is on uh, Cancel One Career, which is the song that has Bam and KB on it. One of my lines, I kind of do it in like a really obnoxious like DMX way. I do the from city to city. And that is a direct joke with KB because his song on this triple beam circus thing, they had asked him to record one take, like kind of like a DMX style recording and that's what they used so he was really embarrassed about it because it wasn't like his style so it's him rapping over this like r&b song his rap is great but he's doing this thing and we were all clowning him so i put it in there and once again that was recorded before we ever planned on releasing it and so then i'm like man for 20 years people think i'm trying to do dmx (laughs) and i'm really not it was just kind of making fun of kb and that's what i liked about cac a lot of that is just us trying to impress each other or make each other laugh. You know what I mean? There's a lot of hidden lines in there. Um, I know at one point Bam has a line on one of his songs about the rap professor, save the rap professor lecture for another day. That is him directly taking a dig at me uh, because I was a really obnoxious rap producer. Like if dudes came in with rhymes and I didn't like them, I'd be like, no, you know, you, or you should say it this way or like, that's kind of corny or like, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to swear that much or whatever. And so um, I loved hiding that kind of stuff in there. So that's how I got those guys. And then it's um, Easter egg city, you know, yes. and uh, you, there, you had to have a level of sophistication and intellectualism to be able to even hang in the CAC crew because, and you got to think about the era too. This is like the height of cash money rap. Yeah. So to have like, and a lot of intellectual rap kind of gets into the political, you know, game for yeah. whatever reason, there's this, uh, you know synchronicity there but um you know you guys were this is what made you guys so special and unique you know and the, all those little easter eggs and all those little songs it, it's like a never-ending treasure trove there's more words per second than like, i don't even somebody should count them up i'm pretty sure it would <laughs> the average would be three to five words for every single second of a lot of those songs and one of my favorite kb lines is off that cancel one career uh song that me and Mark always talked about was the the, the toothpaste linkage, right? That's crazy. KB has a line that goes, you aim for a close-up, but hold up, I don't use Colgate. I mean, and that is a tongue twister in itself, you know, but to do it and ride the beats so well, you know, that was one of my favorite KB lines. So, But, uh, you know, you, KB, Bam, Onug, you guys all worked at that uh, Eastport warehouse. Yeah, well, Onug, yes, right, that's right. Onug had gotten me the job in Salem Warehouse. So Onug's another Salem guy. Um, He's like my other big brother. So uh, Brad, Walkenfuss, he and Nate, or Onug, have been friends forever. And so Onug, Onug's another one of those guys, you know, like we were talking about Matt. I don't know if uh, Onug, Nate, is one of the most incredible musicians I've ever been around. Talk about a guy that can pick up any instrument and just do whatever he wants, especially guitar. He's an amazing uh, piano player as well. He was even, he was a touring musician for M Ward for a time. And just, he's, he's such a good musician. So for us to get him rapping on an album was kind was really fun. And he was into the same, you know, he, he and Brad would listen to NWA and stuff like that. So to get him and that, so he was a natural, he was just kind of like, we're going to do this. I want Odug to be part of the crew just because he was like our best friend at the time and still is. But, um, and then Oatmeal is another one. So Oatmeal, one, had just an amazing voice. Oat has a really deep baritone, and he was, he's was he been Brad's uh, 
friend forever. And he's another one of my unofficial big brothers. And so we just had him. Oatmeal's a trip because you could always get him over, but getting him to write was really difficult. And so Brad would just write his raps for him. And then we'd basically prop him up. He would deliver it like in one or two takes and then go back onto the couch, which I loved. I kind of loved that we had like a couple dirt, like a couple old dirties in the crew. <laughs> yeah. Well, Master Nate, that was, uh, yeah. You know, he was pretty legendary on that tip. But, you know, I asked Bam to, uh, describe what kb was like and he said you know him and eric are cut from the same cloth they're just good dudes super you can just trust them they're just the best dudes ever so i thought that was pretty awesome and then i i asked bam to uh tell me about you know who who went to who you know to be in cac did brad or did eric come to you or did you go to him and he, and he said that uh, he went to you and uh, was really patient you were really patient and uh, gave him a chance and he remembers being in the basement uh, doing a lot of those tracks, uh, even when KB was there. So I just thought that was a, a pretty cool side note. Yeah. And that was, you know, back then, because we, we, we went back to like favorite times. I What I loved about, especially the first one, is we all, it, life was just different than it was a couple years later. For some reason, in 2000, we all just had time. And so when I would record with Bam, like we would sit down and do everything together. So like the song that Bam and I have together which kind of that one was really early too. That was before because otherwise Brad would have been on it, but we were just kind of like, let's record a song and all of that whole beat I made in probably 20 minutes. I, so Bama come over and as we were writing, I would just be like, let's I'll make up a beat. That whole beat is based upon the fact that I accidentally figured out a chorus from a Faith No More song on the guitar. It's the only reason it's even on there. Um, so I put that on there. Bam and I rapped over it. But we did it all together. And same thing. Like, So if we recorded a, a song with KB, like we would all just be there for eight hours in my basement, which I loved. Um, Brad and I recorded every song together on that as far as we'd sit down, write it out. I'd usually make the beats while Brad was there. I very rarely made them alone so it would just kind of be like this is what we're doing today he'd show up at like 9 a.m and we would just do that all day and then at the end of the day we'd have a song um and i liked that you know and so that's why a lot of the raps too have a lot of hidden jokes for each other and so you can and to the easter egg thing that was something that we loved about that era of rap like i can go back and listen to i'm gonna give a, a big shout out to not uh, 1993 that is one of the CAC's favorite albums. Uh, and what's funny is I'm not even a huge Naughty by Nature fan, but Naughty by Nature's album, 1993, dude, it is beginning to end just a masterpiece. Uh, Tretch is out of his head. And it's one of those albums that Brad and I talk about it. There's still stuff that you hear for the first time after hearing it a thousand times, simply because like what you said, he's going so fast and he packs everything with so many hidden lines, but also hidden rhymes. And that was something we always loved was like trying to fit in as many rhymes, but make them kind of not obvious. Right. So only if you go back or even if you see it on paper, like, oh, that rhymes there. And that was the stuff that we used to get a kick out of. But really, a lot of CAC was just like, let's just rap fast because that's what we like. And no wasted lines. That was kind of a big thing. Um, and no wasted words. So if you notice, like on the first album, there's a there's maybe a couple swear words here and there. But the kind of the rule was you can't use them as a filler right just to get the syllables in and that was always a big thing is you know no wasted syllables no filler words every line should be good you have to end with a good a, a good line like the whole thing was not not being lazy right and trying to pack in as many rhymes just making it creative like that um and that made it fun that was also kind of the challenge is that those songs would take us sometimes seven eight hours to write you know 16 bars just because 
a it's hard to write raps if you've never tried to if you've never tried to write a rap it's 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 difficult but also trying to impress the person sitting across from you and brad and i you know brad and i are very we're, we're in sync with what we like and what we know and so you couldn't show up with less you know what i mean yeah, one thing CAC was never it was boring. I mean, it was it's like uh, Neo in the Matrix. You know, the bullet, bullets come at you real fast. You're like, oh my god, this is so many words, so many bullets. But then you, time slows down, and then you can kind of grab them and see them going over your head in slow motion. And that's when it really sinks in. Like, dude, this is something really special. Like, this is you know a lot of rap music. It's so just self-congratulatory and you guys you guys had a whole different angle a whole different spin you were able to do that in a, in a much different way and it, there was no there's no going to the gutter and this no freestyle tricks no swearing and i mean the degree of difficulty was a 10 easily and that that was really the fun part right it was kind of setting those boundaries and those rules and then holding each other and and, and the guests to that and that that was kind of the more difficult thing is brad and i were in sync but then when other people would come in you'd have to be like nah we're not really doing that you know um you, you were way ahead of the curve i mean looking back on it now <clears throat> nobody was doing that back then so I, I, it just it always amazes me that you guys aren't uh, held up in a, a light like that where you're you're kind of recognized because you're sure there was other bands doing their own websites, but they're doing the same kind of music as everybody else. Maybe they're in a punk band, maybe they're playing rock and roll, indie, whatever metal band, you know, they're, but nobody can tell me there's another equally comparable CAC kind of project. Sure. There's nerdcore. You can listen to MC Chris, whatever, but you know, do you guys have this unique angle in a self-contained DIY uh, whole, you know, top down, logistical chain it's impressive you know and it's one of the main motivations for uh, you know trying to do what i do but yeah well and and to that point thank you and and to that point it's funny because i i'm not down with nerdcore at all which is funny because i've heard um even back then people would be like oh like you'll love this guy and they'd give me something like nerdcore related and it does nothing for me you know because that that was never it's hard to explain but that was never our goal it just kind of happened that way. Right. I wouldn't say like, Hey, guest artists, like, like, like KB, I wouldn't say, Hey, you have to write something like with like stuff in it. It was just like, write a sweet rap. And same with bam. I never said, you know, I might critique like, Hey, like, let's not talk about that or something, but I would never be like, Hey, you have to squeeze in a bunch of pop culture. That has happened to be what Brad and I were into. It's a luxury problem. No doubt about it, but nobody could put a label on you guys. Nobody could stuff you into a genre box, which is, always a great sign so nerdcore just happened to be that you guys are yeah. so much bigger than that though you transcended that by a million miles but nobody could figure out what the hell is this because it's so new so unique which was fun and also kind of the frustrating part right so for me if you look especially at the early merch so the, early on i was really involved and then as it went i kind of ceded a lot of it to brad which is pretty much our relationship anyways that's the classic big brother little brother right um but early on you know my idea was let's market us basically as a punk band so if you look at like our early stickers they're just black they're black with with our logo on them um all of our buttons were like punk buttons and i i loved that that was the kind of that was my idea of punk at the time was very much just like, if you're doing something creative that you want to do, that's punk, right? Apparently not a lot of people agree with me on that. So we would play, it, we, we kind of could never find other than playing with maybe like the buttery Lords, right? Um, aside from them, we could never really find the right, 
mix as far as when we would try to play with rock bands that weren't friends of ours, the crowd just wouldn't wouldn't take it sometimes. And then when we played hip hop shows, sometimes that wouldn't work either. There was there's a lot of um, people, which is ironic because we were basically really inspired by rap from less than 10 years ago. And then we're playing rap shows and people are like, oh, this isn't rap. It's like, well, that sure is to me. Yeah, um, I mean, the era of the DJ hadn't even happened, right? There was no Jurassic <laughs> 5 yet. Cut Chemist, DJ Shadow, all these guys that would do DJ albums. It wasn't even a thing yet, you know? It was it was so early. Yeah, it was a weird experience. And so for me, it was kind of fun. I, I like that. I know for Brad, sometimes it was more of a frustrating experience. I kind of liked being that group. I remember once we played... We played a rap show. I won't name them, but we played a rap show with like a legit rap crew in town. Um, cool nuts. I hate, no. <laughs> Although I've met him many times, he he that man is a wonderful, amazing, kind kind man. I that guy in the late nineties, you couldn't turn on K Boo without hearing Cool Nuts. I mean, they were big. They were he's, huge. Yeah, and he's great. I can't. I mean, that guy's done so much for that city. Um, but no, we we played with like what would have considered would have been considered like a legit, you know, hip hop group. And I purposely wore. I had this really horrible like green sweater that had um, a guy in a, like a in a in a old twenties car on the front. Like I purposely just like I'm like let's look as just stupid not not stupid but I'm gonna be as anti rap as possible. And we brought like I think a video of like BMXers or something, and the rap crew straight up like clowned us the whole time that we were playing. And I remember thinking like yeah this th- like this is this is what I want to be right like I want to be this guy that's like I'm st- I still feel like I'm I feel like Brad and I are great rappers I feel like this is good music. And I hated that kind of that whole time period of like, well, unless you're doing this, then you're not rap. I hated that. I know, I know sometimes I, and I think that part of me would frustrate Brad sometimes. Cause I, I was very happy to be that person to be like, yeah, I'll show up and be the hip guy then, you know, if that's what they think it's going to be, because it's going to go that way anyways. Um, to me, I like, I like bands like that, you know, that are going to show up and do their own thing. But um, that was also the frustrating part for us. This is what I'm saying. Daring, brave, risky, bold. And one of my favorite things is all the crazy t-shirts. You guys had the best obscure t-shirts. Like in the Chopstick show, you're wearing a Corey Feldman shirt that you could have only gotten if you actually went to that Corey Feldman show. The, sh- the shirts at the BAM's Halloween party, hilarious. You guys always had the just sickest shirts. I did, by the way, get that at the Corey Feldman 2002 uh, tour yeah i saw that in portland i love Corey feldman but uh yeah I, I totally got that shirt and and to your point i wore that on purpose right i'm like what would be funnier than to see a guy rapping at chopsticks wearing a Corey feldman shirt I'm, and i'm glad that i'm glad that you noticed that that's a deep cut funny postscript to that is Corey played here in tucson god about a year ago and i straight up wore that shirt and i was like i i was so proud to be like the lifer I was like the guy at the Corey Feldman show. I'm like, I got the tour t-shirt from 20 years ago. <laughs> My wife was not as impressed as I was, but yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. But so the postscript to that story is like this crew back there, you know, they clowned us and all of that. And then when we got done playing, you have to, I mean, people forget for a lot of our shows, we, we brought a, a pretty sizable audience. Um, and most of them were our friends. We just happened to have a lot of friends at that time. And they were very dedicated and I had friends that would drive up from Staten for every single show in Portland, right? Which is nuts to me. Um, but we we would always have a dedicated audience, which was really fun. 
And so my my pride, my, my proud moment from that night was that they all kind of cleared out once we were done. And then I remember that that crew even mocking us while they were playing, being like, oh, like they drove everybody out. And I was like, no, nah, we like we brought everybody in. <laughs> um, I rap about that, actually. That's on that's our song uh, is Gresham in the House is is kind of about that night and kind of the frustration that we would have because i i can't i can't stand i'm not a big fan of exclusion like that right like this is the thing and you have to do it this way and just, you hit I, it right on the head the exclusion because in, in those crews that are it's just all bravado and bling or whatever whatever the angle is you know you, you guys had this accessibility and uh, connectedness with your fans that those guys could never hope to have you know if, well, if one guy in in that situation you have a, an mc that's on stage looking down on everybody oh worship me you know whereas the cac was we're in this together yes well and that comes from that from that small show background and like you grew up in a place like salem and thing i liked about that is like if you could even get a show together you might get three bands and they're going to be wildly different and I liked that, you know, I liked playing with different style bands. It was just kind of like, let's see who's playing tonight. And yeah, big up them, you know, um, that was how uh, like the widgets, like we would bring them for a lot of shows just because I loved their band. Those are old friends of mine from, you know, from Salem, from high school. I've known Becky Meyer since we were like in grade school and known those kids forever. And that was kind of the thing. It was like, yes, like we're rappers, they're a rock band, but screw it. And it was fun, you know, and that whole thing of why wouldn't we put these people on and all of that. But yeah, I've never in any, believe me, man, playing so many shows, I've never understood that whole concept of like, and, and attending shows of like, Hey, all three bands need to be the same. I, I think that gets boring. Um, I'd much rather, I would love to go to a show today and see like a rap group open up for like a punk band or something. Cause, cause it's just interesting to me. We were talking about recording in 2000. I want to get this in here because I've never really made this clear. Maybe I should have bragged about this more in the actual albums and stuff. But with every CAC beat, I never owned a sampler. So if you listen to those beats, man, I am playing those things live for three and a half minutes. And with the digital eight, punching in and punching out is really complicated. So aside from vocals, if I was going to do like a keyboard track or something, even though it sounds like I'm looping it, I am standing there with my DJX little keyboard and I'm playing that little loop over and over again live. Anybody that's ever sat and tried to record vocals knows, especially back then before, you know, recording was recording, doing all those punch-ins, punch-outs, you're whoever you're recording, whatever MCs, like, you know, oh, give me, oh, let me get that again. Let me get that again. Oh, can you punch me in here? I mean, the, just the hours and hours, six months of punching vocals will drive anybody crazy. Yeah. And I do want to correct one thing. Brad remembered part of that wrong. So Brad, I would punch in. He was a very big on four bars. So I would have two separate main vocal tracks for him, right? So he would do, he would do one half on one and one half on the other. He would do four take a breath, do the, do the other four and vice versa. Me, I always try to get my main rap down in one take. So that was that's just a one little thing I want to correct from him. Uh, so his experience would be that, yes. And then we would always do um, kind of a, an emphasis line. That was just something we stole from other rappers where, yeah, you just get on there and kind of hype yourself. I wish that we would have gone back and bit each other's hype. That's one mistake I feel like we made throughout. Like I should have been the guy doing seconds on his lines and he should have been the one on mine, but that's only hindsight. Um, that, and that only comes from playing those live. I mean, when you record 
you know, you, you record the, like you, you would write the verse and record it within two hours. And so I wouldn't have known his rap then, but that's one regret I have, but yeah, but to that point, yes. And trying after trial and error, you, you kind of get to know everybody's mic settings, right? Like Brad, Brad has a big booming voice. So for him, I would have to kind of turn everything down to not distort. Whereas mine's a little lighter. And so I would have to turn myself up a little louder KB would record really quiet. Um, it just kind of depended on the person, but yeah, it's just, dude, it's just doing it. It's trial and error, trial and error, you know, until you can get everything leveled up. Right. And that's uh, the other thing that gave the live performances such a, a, a different feel is you guys were each other's hat man live. And, but you listen to the record and, you know, live at the tonic, you know, you're filling in on his verses. He's filling out ears and it just, it's a little different taste, you know, a little different flair. <laughs> I'm glad that that live at the tonic recording is there because that kind of captures us at our probably most like primed as far as we, I could tell from listening to that. We're kind of in our zone. I tell a story about not even preparing for that show, which is totally true. I mean, by that point, I think I forgot that we had a show that night. Like it, it had kind of gotten to that point where he would call me and be like, are you going to be there tonight? And be like, oh, yeah. You know, and we just had it down. We, we played enough consistently over those first years that, yeah, it was just and being brothers helps. Right. So, like, I kind of know what he's going to do. We don't really fight. Uh, we've never been that kind of brothers. So, we, I think we've gotten into arguments, like, in our whole life. So, um, that Live at the Tonic show is so great because not only is the recording quality, like, vastly superior to the other live stuff, because a lot of times it was just being filmed or recorded. It was, this was actually a board recording. The low end is there, you know. That's yeah. the big difference between, like, the Chopsticks videos, the Boiler Room, <laughs> Bam's Party. This was a soundboard recording with audience mixed in and then you know it was at the height of your guys's you know right at the end there 2004 yep. you guys had done the second record you had all those new songs so the live at the tonic it brings those two records together you're playing all the new stuff which is you know fantastic i always thought yeah and and really i got to the point i think both of us did where we really liked that stuff better i, I feel like the stuff that we did later ended up being more what we thought we would have been, which is funny because I think most people prefer the first album. And I think that's how it goes for all musicians, right? I think what you end up, I think your goal, you kind of end up doing your best stuff on the way, <laughs> on the way to your goal. But yeah, we spent a lot of time um, recording that. As far as the second record, Diz Hicks, College Degrees, Sweet Stan Lane. I mean, these are like, you know, vastly different production quality and uh, compositional uh, in nature versus the first record, which is really hard to do. Most bands just kind of copy themselves. And the second record might be a little different, but you guys had already shaken it up. And that's why that Live at the Tonic is, is so killer. But yeah, talk me through. We got into the Boston guys last week. So what, uh, you know, from a production standpoint, what changed for you on that second record? So it's, it's funny. So the, the biggest thing was one, you know, we put out the record and then we played pretty consistently for about a year. And at that same time, kind of to your point, I, I hit just a straight up um, writer's block. You know, I didn't know where to go because if you look at projects I've been involved in in the past, I typically do a band for one album and then, you know, move on or something. And so CAC was different because it's my brother, right? So you don't move on from that. And also people seem to like it, which was uh, interesting. And so I just didn't really know where to go. So production wise, and, I, and remember, I had made all of those beats using that one like lame DJX keyboard that I had, but I'd kind of used as much as I could. Um, especially drums. Drums were a big issue for me, ironically, as a drummer. Um, 
And I just didn't really know where to go. And so that first year after, I don't think I made, he and I did not make one song um, because it was not on purpose. It was certainly Brad's interest was there. I just was like, I don't know what to do. And I didn't want to give up control to anybody. So that was another part of it. And then I eventually... I think Onug helped me find this like little drum machine and I started messing with that and that kind of turned everything back on and also life was changing a lot. You know, I, um, it's just a lot going on, but so we started, I think the first song we made, the very first song that we made after the record was Kenzie Kensington, um, which is to me, not a great song, but people seem to always like it. Brad really liked it. Um, I'm not happy with myself on it. It's got one of the greatest lines, which is, oh, baby, I want to get with you and drink Pat from a pitcher. Oh, yeah. People love that, right? Brad, I mean, Brad comes through on that. Brad saves that song. Uh, I'm I'm definitely the weak link on there. And that, that was kind of the other thing is I just... I don't know if anyone else... You know, people out there that do creative things, you know, you sometimes just don't have it. You know, like, sometimes, like, you pick up your guitar and things happen and sometimes it doesn't. And, like, I just didn't have it for, like, a year. And I, I can't explain to you why. It just... I had this great, great energy there for a while and then it just left. And so we made Kenzie Kensington and I was like, eh. And then... I somehow, and I don't remember making it, but we made Matt Noakes, which to me is my favorite CAC song. Uh, and that was kind of what got me back into it. It, it. To me, it's a perfect, it's exactly what I wanted to do, right? Like if I could pick one song from CAC to be like, this was what I wanted to do every time, it'd probably be Matt Noakes. Just because it's short, it's got a couple different musical parts, which I always tried to do. The raps are really good and there's some really high like inside jokes and creative stuff in there. And that that to me was like the jam. And that's kind of what got me like, okay, like, like, let's do this. Well, we're going to have to listen to that right now. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah, that's that's my favorite. And dude, there's there's so much stuff in that song. So it's funny if you listen to that. Uh, Brad made me leave it in, but at the beginning, you can hear me in the background right when the drums start, and I I cough for a second. But you can hear me say, "I can't." I, th- I think I say, "I don't remember how to rap." Remember when I used to? Because Brad and I were sitting there trying to record, and I was like screaming. And that goes back to like it had been like a year, right? And he and I, I just I was struggling to get my act together. And so that's us like, cause I remember us recording. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I can't get it right. And he's like, dude, you're, he's like, you're screaming. You're like yelling. And I was like, okay, okay. And that's why. Yeah. So he was like, leave that in. He's like, that's funny. But I'm like, yeah, I remember like when I used to be able to rap, like that was awesome. That's a true moment of like frustration. Um, also in there is I talk about going to see screech do stand up, which is a very true story. That is actually the first date that I went on with my now wife, uh, 18 years ago and we've been together ever since and uh, yeah we went and saw Screech do stand up and he got heckled off the stage it was brutal Brad's rap on there is insane so good he has so many rhymes the whole like boasting host and Roki like that is crazy and like I even got the whole like uh, Bret Hart said hell in a cage that was a that was a funny thing that Sea Dog and I um, for those of you that used to watch 80s wrestling you know they would do the like Saturday wrestling shows where they would never show uh, top guys wrestling other top guys. So you 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 would watch. It was mainly for like storyline, and you would watch for like the interviews. And just one this one random time, uh, Bret Hart was threatening. I think it was Roddy Piper. He was like behind a steel cage, and he just said, "I just want to remember one thing: I'm hell in a cage." And he and I said that every day for like the next five years. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. So I even talk about like every song's an inside joke, like when this happened. So, and Matt Noakes even is an inside joke. It's just a very inconsequential baseball player for the Detroit Tigers that like only Brad and C-Dog would probably laugh at that. That was kind of the idea. When we do the CEC mini doc, I think it's going to be called Hell in a Cage. <laughs> it's such a great line and and it's not even a famous line it's not i've never seen it again like we've talked about like maybe like we even made that up because i it's not like a big it was just a one-off and we just thought that was the most funny thing and bret hart's not that guy so it even sounded funnier coming out of him you know being like this threatening dude um that's a great title for that but yeah and so then from there then we started recording like in earnest like once i got my act together then I started making beats. I all of a sudden was making, I thought, much better beats. Um, and I was excited again. And then the Boston thing happened. So we had about an album's worth of stuff together close to it. Well, dude, the heel turn has 23 songs. Yes. And we probably had, when the Boston thing happened, we probably had 12 or 13 that were close to finished. And when I say close to finished, this is where things got complicated because I really wanted, um, A, I like having audio samples on stuff. And part of that is, but doing the setup I had was very time consuming to get audio samples onto things. And then two was getting guest rappers. So this was, I mean, the timing was so short but by this time when we were we were recording again everybody's lives had changed so much we weren't really doing these like marathon sessions together anymore it was more like i would do the beat by myself record if i could record first or not have brad come over do his verse and then we'd like oh this song would be good for sea dog and we'd leave it open space we'll shoot it might be four months before i see him right so it, it went from like this really 
natural thing that we did the first time to kind of being a project. And that was really a big delay. Yeah. And it was just, everybody was spread out. All of a sudden Sea Dog was living in Salem. I mean, we were just living lives, you know, everybody was very busy. We gotten older, a little older. Um, and then the Boston thing happened, which was great. Uh, we got introduced to these, uh, we had a big supporter who introduced us to his friends from Boston and they were really, and if you pay, if you play music live enough, I don't know you, I've had so many experiences with people coming up to me after a show and being like, wow, that was great. Here's my card. I've exciting opportunities for you, blah, blah, blah. It's the oldest story and nothing ever happens. Right. So when you first hear that, oh, these friends from Boston, they want to mess with you. It's like, oh, okay. But then it really kind of was legitimate, you know, like they flew out, which blew my mind and were really cool guys, had a lot of interest. I remember it a little differently than Brad. Um, they were very interested, but they had, they were from a different world. And part of why it didn't work out was really because of me. Um, I was pretty difficult about the whole thing as far as they simply wanted to come in. They liked the first record and they said, Hey, we want to re-release this on our label and give you guys promotion money. We will send you on a tour do what do they, what do they call that? Where they have like the, the studio guys come and see your show, like the private show um, showcase. Yeah. They're like, yes, they were like, we have the means to do showcases and stuff. And I being me, uh, just like the people I hang out with, right. I've got to be difficult. So I was like, no, I was like, <clears throat> I want to do a whole record. I want to do a new record like that one. Cause by this point, man, it had been out for almost two years. What I've what I'm dying to know is so the Boston guys come in you 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 do the heel turn twenty three songs there's the uh, simple tricks and nonsense which is what would become the sort of second record somebody made a decision to re-record all those vocals from the first record was that you oh yeah I'm getting there okay so yes yeah, so let's break that down so once again I ruined this whole thing Brad Brad I think was really nice in his breakdown of how, why it didn't work out I I'd say it's ninety percent me. Um, I wanted to do a brand new record. They wanted to do our old record and we kind of met in the middle and they were like, let us pick. Cause we had, I'd given them the, the new songs and they were like, no, like they didn't like them. And that kind of bugged me. So then that's, that's for me, that's where I started being a little difficult where I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do the old thing. So we finally decided on doing a mix. They were like, we have these certain songs from your old one that we kind of insist on using. And I was like, okay, and they were like, we'll let you do some new ones. I was like, cool. So we were going to do this like mix. Um, part of the re-recording, so Brad and I always had, because you have to remember, a good number of those songs we recorded before we had the idea of letting anybody hear them, right? So a lot of it was just us having fun, entertaining each other. And there was always little things that we wanted to go back and fix. Some of it is, you know, when you play stuff live enough, you kind of figure it out later. And rap's funny because you don't really practice. I don't know if other rap groups practice, but we never like sat in the basement and like practiced. It was not like a, because it's not like a, a band where you have to make sure you're like, you're on the same page and hitting the right notes. It's just like, dude, you either have your act together or you don't like, we're going to press play. And we're going to yell over microphones for 30 minutes. So I wanted to fix things. Um, there were swear words that we wanted to take out. That was kind of one of their things. And something that was stupid to us when we, we had an experience where we did an interview for radio. Uh, this is before the Boston guys. And we realized like all of our songs had one swear word except for like one. And we were like, oh, that was stupid of us, right? You either swear all over it or you don't. And so part of that. So yes. So the long winded answer to your question. Yes. 
I made the executive decision. Let's go back and re-record all of our vocals on the old tracks and we can fix any rhymes that, that we don't like. Um, we can fix swear words and, f- and fill those out just so just so if, if things work out that they could choose any song they like. An incredible amount of work. Yes. And that's also what derailed it because we spent all this time and I messed there were some songs, I can't remember which ones, where I messed with on the original Digital 8 file too much, where I ended up having to re-record some of the music. And I couldn't figure out like effects I do. So if you if you really want to nerd out on CAC, if you listen to uh, Bill Bixby, for example, on the original CD, the the minor threat sample is all in one ear, which was actually not on purpose. That was me not knowing how to use my eight track. I thought the hard left pan was uh, pure genius and uh, totally contrived and meant to yes. Happen. Yeah, everybody does. No, that was a complete accident. And and where it ended up bugging me was certain places we would play would have a mono setup. And so that would be lost. So we'd play our CD. You wouldn't hear certain things if they were hard panned. So I was like, okay, well, this is a chance for me to go back and fix that. But dude, once you start fixing things, it never stops, right? You never get it right. And that's a big problem I've always had as like a producer is just I never know when to quit. Um, I relate to George Lucas on that, like just not knowing when to leave it alone. And to your point, you're always right the first time, right? Like I got it right on accident the first time. Why I wanted to mess with it, I can't explain to you now other than just being in my head and being crazy. So that was how, so that long winded way is how we got to simple tricks, uh, which for me, honestly, wasn't really something I was that excited about. If we want to be honest, 20 years later, like I, I never really music i never really set out for anything to be a living i i'm not the kind of person that, that could tour i could not live in a van like i'm not built for that i'm a, I'm a homebody um i think I, I think my brother was you know brad brad definitely could live in a van and be a touring musician he's built that way i hate to leave my house so like that was another thing where i was just not that excited about it um i had some experiences like when we went to master I wanted to master where we were used to, which was Mike Lastra, who was like a hero of mine in Portland. He'd basically produced and mastered a ton of records in Portland that were like up my alley, right? Like that was my world. Like he would, he would do like punk records, Hazel records, like any, any, any record Mike Lastra was down and Brad and I had a great experience with him. And then I wanted to do it there. And once again, them being from a different world, they're like, no, we want to pay for like the highest price guy in Portland which we did. And I'm not going to name his name, but it was horrible. I had a horrible time. Um, he wasn't nice. He wasn't friendly. We were paying him an ungodly amount of money. He acted like he was annoyed that we were there. Just that experience alone was terrible. But yeah, we, we got, and then those masters that we got were not usable. We sent them to the guys and they were like, we don't like them. So we ended up getting a master by like one of Brad's friends. And once we got the master together, they had released another album and it didn't do as well as they thought, right? And, and this is what I remember. So, like, they got to this point where they released this other record before ours, and th- it was totally different from ours. It was not a rap record at all, um, but they it just didn't work. And then I guess some other stuff came up. I and mean, we got to the point where we were so close to releasing it, they even sent us a box of, I have it somewhere, of just, like, promo. It was a choice of, like, all these logos. Like, they had people working on it. It was crazy. But then it all fell through, right? And so then Brad and I were left with, well, crap. Now we have these new songs. And so then I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to release this like weird, you know, 
half and half record where I don't want to have like, I'm not going to re-release half of our old songs. To me, that just seems so cheap. So that's when we were like, let's double down and do this big album because we already had a lot of it recorded. And part of that was, is we were doing some different stuff. And I always thought that like, if you're going to do different things, it's always safer to hide them in a bigger group of songs. So if you do like a 10 song record and you have three that you think are kind of interest, like weird, that's, that's not going to play well. Right. But if you have 20 songs and three of them are weird, you can kind of sneak them in. And that was the idea behind the whole, what became the heel turn was like, let's just do this gigantic record. It's been long enough. Uh, but then that became a problem in and of itself because we had a bunch of guest spots. We couldn't fill a bunch of stuff to a bunch of audio samples I wanted, but couldn't like figure out. It was just, it became this nightmare. It's so funny to look at the state of like trap beats and samples today where, you know, you see these guys on Twitter and they're like, stop sample snitching. And, you know, it's like, it's a free for all. It is a frigging, like I, I was in the studio uh, getting a tape mastered a couple of weeks ago and the guy, you know, he does a lot of like local rappers and they, all these guys, they come in and they just want to rip stuff off YouTube and that, and use it as a beat. And it's just, yeah. that was the, in 2004, it was still that era, you know, it was right on the cusp of that big change. So I, it's so funny to look back on, I think now. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story about sampling. The only thing I ever sampled, the, the only music that I ever sampled for CAC was the opening, that little bass part from Salad Days by Minor Threat. And I did it just because I could. Um, my wife, my now wife, had an SK. Was an is it an SK one? Like the old Casio, right. like one of those mini Casios. If you remember, they had the little drum pads on them, but you could sample like I think it was like up to three seconds, and that is what I used to sample that Minor Threat record. So I played it through my stereo, and then I had it hooked into that SK one, and so I played the opening part and I got it onto one of those drum pads. And then I got the second part on the other drum pad. And so if you listen to Bill Bixby, it's literally me live pressing the drum pad every time for the sample. So it's not even looped. But when we did CAC, that was the first band I'd really been in where like sometimes we would have, it was weird, man. We would play some shows and there would be like you were saying on the last podcast with Brad, the show at the Tonic, there was like a hundred people there. And I only knew some of them, which was crazy to me. But then sometimes we would go play the next month at the same venue and there'd be like 12 people. So it was always a mixed bag. But uh, CAC was definitely the first band that I was in where we had strangers that were into us, which and it wasn't a lot, but it was still a really cool experience. I remember I remember Brad once got like noticed on the street and that was like the big thing that like made it for him. Right. Somebody was like, hey, like, are you to CAC? And he was like, oh, my God. Famous in Portland. Yeah, very. Right. And well, no. So, you know, so funny thing about us and I'll say this here is that we were famous in Salem. So the funny thing is that so the widgets, um, the widgets are like a year or two younger than me. And they were they were big pretty to look at fans and they're great musicians in their own right. And they did what Matt and I couldn't do, which is they kind of created a whole thing in Salem. So the widgets are the best example of like, they are straight up famous in Salem, Oregon, right? Like when the widgets broke up, dude, they were on the like front page of the lifestyle section of the, of the Statesman journal, which really? is like the newspaper. Yes. So in Salem, they created this whole thing. They were very popular, but only in Salem which is crazy to me. So they also worked at like the record store in Salem. And so during this whole time, they would put out in the newspaper, like the best selling stuff at ranch records, which was like the big record store in Salem. And they would always put CAC in there for like two years. And since all the kids looked up to the widgets, all the kids in Salem would buy the CAC. And so Brad and I had this really funny 
I'll tell this funny story. So like we played this show in Salem it was our first time playing there. And it's where Brad and I grew up, but we were both living in Portland. And so we went to play a show with widgets and was at this like very well lit coffee shop. And there was probably like 60 something kids there already. And I will never forget us walking in and Brad and I, at this point, man, we were the height of scumbags, right? We were like in our early twenties, just drinking a lot. I think I had like a Fu Man. No, I had like a Hulk Hogan mustache, just being dirt bags and rolled into the show in Salem, this all ages show. And there was high school kids that were like whispering, like that one's walking fuss. Hey, look, that's Biff Bocaroba. And I remember Brad and I freaked out just and, and just freaked out. And it was probably only like 10 kids, et cetera. You know what I mean? But like, I've never before or after had that experience. And we both were like, oh, shit. And I'll never forget. We went. So just like dirtbags, man, we left our friends to go play their set, went to a bar that was like two doors down and just started drinking. And at some point, somebody just walked down and we're like, we didn't even tell anybody where we were going. So they had to come find us, which was not on purpose, just being idiots. And they were like, you're on. And I'll never forget, dude, I was so nervous. I drank so much at that bar. I remember stumbling back to this coffee shop and I do not remember playing the show. And I remember asking later, like, were we good? And they're like, yeah, it was great. And I was like, wow, I don't. And drunk rapping is the worst thing ever, oh, by the way. Dude, there's nothing that clashes yeah. like oil and water worse than alcohol and trying to be articulate with your words. <laughs> yes. And that was another experience where I knew that we weren't built for anything more. Right. I was like, if dude, if just playing a coffee shop got us like it was just that idea of being of being like something to somebody was just it was so terrifying. And also, man, playing in bright lights. <laughs> Did you guys get liquored up before a lot of shows or was that kind of a one-off? That was by far the drunkest. I, I don't, I don't remember if Brad was that drunk. I know I was, um, not so much. And definitely as things progressed, we would probably do more and more. Um, if you look at those early shows, like we're hardcore, like drinking water and being good and all of that. But once we got better, I've never been that drunk on stage before or after. Um, not too much. No, because the alcohol messes with your throat. Right. Like beer is beer is terrible yeah. when you're trying to like yell into a mic. No, what honestly messed with me back in the day was smoke. So whenever we would play bars, my voice would go out every single time because I've never smoked. Um, and playing in those smoked out places would just so we had a lot of shows where by the end I, I could barely get words out. And it was also because like we, when we played live, if you hear it on the tonic show, I'm just screaming. Right. Yeah. I'm just yelling. Uh, but a lot of times, yeah, I would throw my voice out almost every time. Back when you could still smoke in those tiny little bars and everybody was smoking. Yeah. And you talk about timing. It was like right about the time that we finished playing was when they outlawed that. Right. I was like, well, I would have loved to have had that because uh, we played all ages shows. It was, it was great. So what uh, isn't Blitz and Trapper from Salem? Yes. Those are. I know a couple of the dudes in that. I went to grade school with one of them. Have you heard of the band Typhoon? I don't think so. Okay, so Typhoon is like ty Typhoon is kind of the like Salem band done good. So they basically they're the Salem band that kind of made it big, bigish. Like they ended up playing on Letterman and had some other stuff, but they were kids that were younger than the Widgets, and those were the kids that were like big Widget fans and ended up taking it, you know, up. Um, Blitz and Trapper, even though they're from Salem, I would consider them more of a Portland band. And that's kind of, you know, everybody associates CAC with Portland, but really, yeah. you guys are Salem to the yeah, core. Yeah, well, 
and we repped Portland, right? Because like we were both living there, but it was funny that we ended up be, still being more popular in our hometown than we ever were in Portland. So like we would go down and play shows in Salem. After that first experience, we were like, oh, so we would go down and play with the widgets in Salem and always have big turnouts, whether we were at bars or all ages. So it was kind of funny being down there and still seeing, you know, people that were into us that I didn't know. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would still say we were a Portland band just because we were living there at the time. You know, just like with Blitz and Trapper, I'm pretty sure they were living in Portland when they got to where they got. But like the Widgets, dude, like they lived in Salem. They were they were Salem, you know, yeah. um, which I respected about them. They're they're if anybody out there's never heard the Widgets, they're amazing. They're one of my all time favorites. I remember uh, seeing. I think I don't know if it was a tribute show. It was one of the last CSC live performances. I think it was, I don't know what year it was, but you guys were playing the Ash Street, and you'd played two shows. You would played a show in Salem, drove up to Portland to play the Ash Street, and I was like, "Geez, man, these guys are." Dude, that whole story is crazy. So yeah, so I it's funny as much stuff as I've done musically, I've maybe booked five shows uh, in my whole time. So I've never been that kind of a driving force, Brad. Walking Fuss was the guy that got everything done for us as far as on that end. So he was the promotion guy. He was the guy that got us all of our shows. Um, so he had scheduled a show with us and the Buttery Lords and somebody at the Ash Street. And then like a month later, the Widgets decided that they were going to go their separate ways and they were going to have this big like final show and they wanted us to play. So we were all very good friends with them. And I was also um, at that time I had started playing in a band with Nick and Becky and Doug. So three fourths of the widgets, I started playing in a band with them called the Deerling Darlings. And so we were like, Hey, the Deerling Darlings can open David from the widgets had another band. So it was like, he can play in the second band. The CAC could play third. Cause we all have, you know, we, we, we've been playing shows and then the widgets will play their final show. Well, it sucked because it ended up being scheduled on the same day as this show we had scheduled in Ash Street. And to Brad's credit, man, he was like, I'm not going to back out of it. He was like, there's no way. He's like, I, I'd feel bad for, you know, the Buttery Lords. And also we just look bad to the Ash Street. And so we played. So, dude, I played a set with the Deerling Darlings. Then I played a full set with CAC. The part that sucked is we had to leave halfway through the Widgets last show um so i i got them to play like my favorite song like early <laughs> so i like begged them like play the you know, play wrath of zeus i remember screaming wrath of zeus and they played that and then we had to leave drive to portland and then play a whole nother cac show exhausting and yeah and the ash street show had about 15 people there well, so we wrong. went from playing yeah <laughs> So you remember, so that show was pretty lackluster. That was one of our, that was ironic. That was one of our lowest attended shows in a long time. And we had just left this like gigantic show, you know, where we played, I kind of, I think Brad and I played for almost an hour. I remember being really sweaty. Um, and I remember that show, speaking of drunk, just because Brad and I wouldn't get wasted before shows doesn't mean our, our, our crew wouldn't. So I remember that night, Sea uh, Dog was in rare form and i remember having to like corral him and get him to perform so we had this whole sweaty long show and then just to get in your car and drive an hour draining yeah i mean you get yeah. like we were talking earlier every song being a 10 round boxing match cardio wise you get off stage you get in your car you're that's it man that's game you're over. done to drive you know all the way to portland to do it all over again yeah Rough. Well, and for us, the tough thing was, is we knew, you know, 90% of the people that came to see us were our, our friends. And so for that night, we were like, 
we know everyone's going to be at this widget show because we had kind of cross pollinated everybody at that point. Right. So like I, you know, we knew we, we, we felt bad because we weren't going to draw anybody, anybody or not. I shouldn't say anybody because you were there, but like most of the people that were going to see us were going to be in Salem that night. And so I felt bad just because we drew nobody. And yeah, I remember there was like three ladies that danced throughout our entire show. That was the only thing that got me through it. There was like three drunk ladies that just happened to be there and when you play rap music, dude, and there's and there's people that are drunk, they'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely took CAC shows for granted. I, I should have, uh, looking back on it, you know, you just thought I would go on forever. I, I've never been a guy that wants to be like at the front of the stage. I'm usually in the back chilling. Like yeah, that, but I'm just. Oh, I am too. So the Dearling Darlings, that's um, Nick and Becky wearing the widgets. Yeah. So Dearling Darlings. Yeah. So Dearling Darlings came about because the widgets. The widgets were kind of, they were slowly breaking up. Well, I should say the widgets, those dudes all grew up playing music together. And so that was the only band any of them had ever been in. And just as we were getting older, they were kind of, you know, going their separate ways. And Nick and Becky, I had been, I had recorded music under my, of my own under a name, Go For Glory uh, for years. Just, you know, it was all me. It was just stuff that I would do in my spare time. I, I, I think. I've played maybe three shows under that name, but it was never anything that I was trying to like do, but it was just, you know, when I would write songs, I would record the drums, the bass and all that stuff and just put them out on these little CDs. And Nick and Becky were always like my number one fans. Becky especially was always like just the, she's the hands down number one, go, uh, go for glory fan, probably the only go for glory, big n- number one fan. So when the widgets were kind of going their own, doing their own thing um, <clears throat> for that reason, Nick and Becky approached me and were just like, we want to still play music. Do you want to do something? And I was like, sure, let's like, obvi- like, let's do that. So we were all friends and hanging out anyways. And then ironically, we were like, well, we need a drummer. Who can we find? And then we were like, well, Doug plays drums. And so we ended up not on purpose, basically just doing three fourths of the widgets and me. Um, and then that was the dearling darlings, which is named after um, a feelings record. Feelings are this, very unsung band from Portland that all of us were just obsessed with. They were um, a band that was around for God, maybe two years. We would see them whenever they played and we were just really into them. And they had a song called Dearling Darling. And so we're like, well, we'll same ourselves that. And then Doug ended up moving to Florida. And so we spent an awkward time without a drummer and being a drummer, I know I, I I never had trouble getting work, right? Like it's easy when you when you're a drummer to find bands because nobody ever wants to be the drummer. Um, and Nick and Becky, luckily through their connections at Ranch and just knowing everybody, they knew um, this kid uh, Devin Gallagher. And I say kid because he was literally a kid. I mean, we were in our mid twenties, just drunk buffoons, and we ended up getting a drummer who was a senior in high school. Uh, this kid, Devin, and he was one of the drummers in the band I mentioned earlier, Typhoon. And he also had his own band called the Black, 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 which have a great 45. Um, he's a really he was a really smart guy, really good kid. And we just corrupted him. So we were able to and I actually know because he was actually really good, but we, he was able to like drive us places and all of that. But um, so, yeah, we played pretty steady for I want to say about a year, year and a half. Um, I really liked all the songs that we did. And then this is a true testament to just how motivated yet unmotivated we can all be is that. So we recorded um, a bunch of stuff. We had a whole album's worth of stuff. And then Nick and Becky decided that they were going to move to Austin. 
Brad and I always planned on putting it out and we just never did. It was just one of those things that just, I think we were all satisfied to have it and I'm really happy with it. I think it's, I think it's some of the best stuff that any of us ever did and it just never came out. And so now uh, we got the walk and fuss record out and that's a real like new record that Brad worked really hard on. The stallion out now available. Music is sold. Crazy good. After that, we're going to finally release this widgets record that sorry, the dearling darlings record. And then I'm talking with them. We also recorded three songs of the, I recorded three songs of theirs back in 2001 that all ended up on their second album, but they're very different. And so we're finally going to like release those and just let people hear them. Cause I don't think anyone's ever heard them other than the five of us. Um, and so that'll be coming out on Sly as well. So we have, a new widget CP and then also the Dearling Darlings album will hopefully be out in the next couple months with the bonus deep cuts. So who's on the, who's playing drums on Japanese word for pigeon. Is that Devin or Doug? That is, that is Devin. So Devin's on all the recordings. He's a great drummer. Uh, but yeah, he was 18. God bless his heart. He was 18 at that time. And we darlings, we were very, uh, Nick and I, would keep a lot of this stuff together. Becky's Becky's a very fun bandmate and she's also the like she's punk without knowing it. So she was always hard to corral into like getting into practice and all of that. But yeah, so I think for Devin it was probably a fun experience, which is funny. At the time I had the same experience, man. When I was 19, I played drums in this really great band called The Putouts with Onug from CAC. So Nate was uh, in that band, this guy, Ryan Slatham, who was an amazing songwriter, and this uh, and our friend Scotty, who was also really talented. And so I got sucked into this band when I was 19, and they were all like 25. And I remember feeling so excited and so like, it was such a learning experience. So it was a trip to be on the other end of that, to be, to now I was the 26-year-old dirtbag who was like, you know, showing up drunk to practice for this poor 18 year old kid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a champ, man. And I think those, I, I think those songs turned out great, even though it took us 15 years to get them done and released. Let's listen to Japanese word for pigeon, the dearling like darlings, Devin on drums. <laughs>
That song is amazing, dude. It just is like, dude, that song kicks ass for like hard for real. That song, that song is a wonderful testament to Nick Samarin, who is, it's funny. I've talked with him about this. He was born to be the second guitar player. It's like what he likes. So that song's all built around. He wrote a lot of that. And that, but that little opening line is just so catchy, right? That little guitar line. Oh yeah. And, and the drums are so good. Yeah. Dude. And then at the end, come on, pajan. Yeah. Oh dude. I mean that whole song, dude, that, that song really kicks ass. Yeah, I lo- I I love that stuff, and it's it's fun. It was that was one of the bands that I was able to finally give up some some sort of control in, just because I respected those guys so much. So I would actually, you know, so I would I would take like especially Nick's opinion. Um, but no, dude, that's a great testament to Samarin, who just the dude loves to play the like second guitar line. So if you play any chords, he can just come up with the coolest stuff over it never solos right just that just that perfect like second guitar um melodic yes very much so and it's just what he was it's just his whole calling because i joke with him about that i'm like it must be a bummer for you to play guitar by yourself right because like he has nothing to play along with because that's really what he's into he's he's into just adding that second piece which I, which i'm terrible at so for the two of us it was really easy um to play together and then you know becky's got her own sort of like energy and stuff and she um especially live she's really fun but yeah i love that stuff um i don't know why like i said we'd never just end up uh we why we never ended up getting around to releasing it so and cool side story so the feelings was that band that we were super obsessed with and with their lead in the feelings was uh ralph yotes who was uh the drummer and early like built to spill stuff and so ralph was the lead guy in the feelings. And so we were all really into him and Brad and I through a whole separate side thing, Brad and I, the CAC ended up opening for one of Ralph's bands. And so the dearling darlings, I got my, I got us on that bill as well. And so we opened and I remember uh, poor Devin had a show where he was playing in two bands. So he literally was at a different show organized it so he could leave that show he, he opened leave that show came over to ours played drums on our set and then immediately left to go play with typhoon back at the other show so like he opened and closed at this one show and then played opening at ours which i thought was nuts but we got to meet ralph and got his uh permission to use the name which was a big deal for all of us even though same thing he's like portland famous right but to us he was like lord jesus christ so well when um, the butteries dropped that song and uh you know they did that video uh man that was that was epic that was big it'd be it was such a it was so true it's such a great song i always love that concept um matt and i had this phrase that we would use where we would be like oh it's like is that guy a big deal and we'd say no he's like he's chris brady famous so chris brady to us was like a, just a god um he was one of, he was the bass player in pond and pond to matt and i was like the end all be all and to david from the widgets uh but to, to us at the time in high school we thought pond were just they were it they're like the perfect band Dude, if you've never listened to Pond, their their second record is just it's it's perfect. It's a perfect album. As far as if I could make that, that's like what I would do. I will be checking out Pond as soon as this is over. They're so good. The Practice of Joy Before Death is just it's an amazing record. I've and heard that title. Yeah, well, that's because I stole it. I stole it. I stole right for the CAC. I stole it for the Practice of Beer Before Sleep, and I work it into one of our raps. It's a Practice of Joy Before Death. Yeah. 
That's what so that once is. again, yeah. you just found an Easter egg live, live on air, Dude, my it's, friend. It's what audience engagement. <laughs> you, you guys, you guys knew about engagement before engagement was even a thing. You know, we were engaging on accident. Dude, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Chris Brady famous was our way of saying like famous in Portland, where it's just like, and there's so many guys like that, you know, like when we grew up in, I mean, Pete Krebs to me was just, he still is like just an amazing, I never understood how he never got gigantic. And he's a, he's a guy that if you grew up in Salem or Portland, like you're a big fan of Pete Krebs. And I don't know if he has a presence outside of Oregon, you know, and it's just one of those things that it never quite works um, for whatever reason. But to me, God, he's still just a legend. Um, but yeah, dude, I love that idea of, and the buttery's captured it so perfectly with famous in Portland. When they, when they, when he says that one verse, it's like uh, you're not famous, you're Portland famous. There's a difference. There's a difference, right? Right. And I was like that. Uh, I'm famous too, right? Just that idea, like yeah, you're famous. I'm famous too, man. I'm famous in Portland, you know. And like, and that, and that's so true. Like I, there was a time where I would walk around and people would. I at one time was in CAC, right? I, I had, uh, but I also was working as a, I was a karaoke host for a time at chopsticks. And so there was times, especially like my wife used to comment on it when we first met where she's like, people just like everywhere we go, people know you. And I'm like, it's really nice. Cause if people call me Eric, I know that I know them from one way or another, but I had this whole section of people that would just call me Biff. And that was my karaoke handle. And that was my rap name. And so it was really handy for me. So people would be like, Biff, I'd be like, Hey, you know, it's like, it must be from chopsticks or a show. And it was that idea of like, you do start thinking like, wow, I'm famous here. I'm famous in Portland, you know, but I go to Chicago. Not one person's going to know who I am. <laughs> I always want to know what, where does Biff Pokeroba come from? What is that? Is that a wrestling thing? No, it's actually a baseball thing. So, um, Brad and I, Brad and I have some common loves, which are, as we already talked about rap, but specifically just that crazy late eighties to early nineties run of rap where dudes were just out of their own heads. That was a big thing for us, but also we were raised, uh, playing baseball and like our whole formative, like early years are, were, and, and when I say raised playing baseball, I mean, nothing, but like we were, the only thing that we did was baseball was read about it, talk about it, play it. Uh, my dad was a competitive baseball player. And so that was like his whole thing. And so, yeah, dude, we growing up, I, I don't remember not having a baseball card collection. One of my very first mem- like cognizant memories is I was like three or four sitting in the stands of a baseball game, opening a pack of baseball cards, knowing I already had a collection, if that's crazy to you. Um, and so Brad and I just had this great love for like these old baseball names. So when we, um, when we first started rapping, we had like terrible nicknames. I think I was, I was E-Rock, which I had just stolen from a guy in the, in the coop. There's a lot of E-Rocks. We'll put it that a way. A lot of E-Rocks. And if you want the best, for my money, the best rap song ever made, it is Fat Cat's Big A Fish by The Coop. The C-O-U-P. Uh, best song ever. And the, the other dude in The Coop, so there's Boots Riley, but the other guy is E-Rock. When I was in high school, I was like, I'll just steal that. I'm E-Rock. Um, the sad thing was, is when I was playing music, I was known by Eric B. Because I was never that big of a fan of my last name just because of the... If you're in a band band where you're playing an instrument, that was Eric yeah. B. Yeah. Then I was Eric B. Just because, um, ironically, dude, I there was two presidents, right, with that last name, but also in Salem, Salem was founded by this family called the Bushes. Oh, so and, and, and between two thousand and two thousand four, you're not Bush, a good time, I mean, dude. 
Not a good time. Yeah. And especially in Portland. Right. And so I never liked the last name. And so when I was playing like music, like, yeah, like non-rap music, I went by Eric B. Well, when we started rapping, it couldn't be Eric B because there was already Eric B and Rakim. Right. right? I'm not gonna be that stupid. And so, yeah. So Brad and I decided like, let's go back and pull some like sweet old baseball names. And Johnny Walkenfuss was a catcher slash like utility player for the Tigers. And Brad has always loved him. And so we were, he was like, I'll be Johnny Walkenfuss. And I just picked, um, there's an old, there was a backup catcher for the Braves for many years named Biff Pokoroba. Dude, and I, I was like, had, what a great. These are Easter eggs. I thought I knew everything about you guys. <laughs> I had no idea these are real people and baseball yeah. people. I thought Walkenfuss was his alter ego wrestling name. And I thought Biff Pokoroba was some made up. I can't believe these are real guys and real baseball players. There's a real human being that walked our earth named Biff Pokoroba. The irony is that, yeah, and the luck for me, the luck for me is that I spelled it wrong. So the real Biff Pokoroba spells it, it's P-O-C-O, and I happen to spell it P-O-C-A. The luck in that is that nobody's taken it for anything. It's like a nonsense word. So it's like my email, it's everything. I can be be Pokoroba because I happen to spell it wrong. Um, Because we didn't take the forethought to actually look at a baseball card before we use these names but then we ended up giving all the cac guys like alternate baseball names so like talik who is a great bass player who played bass on a couple songs he was al bumbry which which is a real baseball player um trying to think of the other ones i know we gave fargo was like manny trio um just these wonderful baseball names we had but yeah dude walking fuss and pokoroba those are old baseball poles dude your, your baseball references are deep in those cac records i mean from akendo billy martin uh, if I was a pitcher, you'd be Don Baylor. I mean, dude, that line killed me when it came out because, you know, I'm a halfway baseball fan, not like you guys. Yeah. Know? I got a collection of baseball cards too from the 80s. But, you know, if I was a pitcher, you'd be Don Baylor. He holds the record for getting hit by a pitch. <laughs> so if you're not a baseball so fan, if you're not a baseball fan, I mean, it's genius. <laughs> Now you understand the diss. Yeah, I, I was always very happy with that. That's actually one of my, yeah, I feel like that's one of my better ones. Uh, and that was, and that once again goes back to like, if you throw enough stuff out there, right, it sticks with certain people. And so that was kind of our thing was like, dude, like it's not cool in 2000 to be into like underground music, but also like baseball and 80s wrestling. Yeah. And it's funny now because some of that seems to be romanticized like now it's cool. Uh but I'll tell you what dude, living through it in 2000, no one thought I was cool for being into Randy Savage from 1987. Oh, that was not like right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that was not like a point of pride. For the third time on this podcast, dare I say, brave, risky, <laughs> daring. <laughs> this is the uniqueness of what you guys did. Uh, yeah. And it was also just like, we, you know, if we're into it, you know, somebody else is into it. So like, I'm glad that you got that. Right. So it's like, yeah, you throw like a Billy Martin reference in the, in the middle of a rap song and you're like, oh, like I get that. And I love that in rap songs too. Like I love when I get it. And then sometimes I can tell there's references that I don't get. And that makes me curious. I'm like, what is that about? You know? And sometimes you hear something later and you're like, oh, I get it now. And I, that's always what I loved about rap. That's what's so unique about it. Cause you can't really do that with like, I guess you could do that with like rock music, but it's not as fun, you know? Whereas you can just scream out like 85 references in a minute and just hope somebody, you know, finds them. Yeah. The other big one was uh, I run this like Vance Johnson on speed going 12 rounds like you're Apollo Creed. That was the other one that always resonated with our little group of friends. Like where we, every time I'd come on, it'd be like, you know, we'd have that extra little vitriol when we were yeah. saying it back. Dude. The one that always cracks me up is Brad has the great line. I'm really jealous of it. The uh, I come from all angles like a Kent to Colby. And I was like, oh, man, because if you knew old baseball, man, that guy was a pitcher for the Pirates. 
ugliest sin and just and he and he that was his whole thing he would throw sidearm underhand like submarine overhand and i was like dude he comes from all angles like he's kent to colby and once again if you know Deep. and like and sea dog of all of all of our crew had the insane baseball knowledge so if anything it would impress him right so those are lines that we would stick in there for him where he'd be like because like fargo doesn't know baseball from anything right but so you're throwing all these different lines in for people and yeah dude but i'm come from all angles like i'm kent to colby it's just a crazy line dude yeah i mean they're just deep deep baseball references you know but that's you know like that's uh i was talking with your brother last week the um I think it's a good segue because I know you're a huge Stallone fan, but you know, uh, Frank Stallone is quite the guitar connoisseur. He shops at a very high end guitar store in Burbank called uh, Norm's Rare Guitars. But he's also in one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Barfly. And, you know, uh, your brother would always reference Bukowski, Socrates, uh, you know, all these famous literary characters talking about uh, critical thinking, you know, really deep topics to be trying to rap about. But uh, so we, we really connected on that level. And uh, so I thought, I don't know if you remember the couple of obscure Stallone movies that really stuck with me as a kid because, you know, my old man dragged me out to go see him and uh, they just really landed on top of me like a ton of bricks. One was Cobra and uh, oh, yeah. the other one was Over the Top and uh so I just was wondering, you know, where they ranked. And I was looking at the Stallone rank of movies on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, going kind of <laughs> down the list. And I was just curious what uh, what your list is. Dude, well, it's tough, man. Over Over the Top is up there. That's It's one of his best. I mean, it's so ridiculous, right? It's such a ludicrous movie. Cobra Cobra's almost too over the top. It's almost winking at you. Like, it. Cobra almost knows that it's bad, which it's funny. Uh I could talk movies all day, by the way. So like, so like with Brad, yeah, well with Brad, that was always his big thing, right? Is he, he was a, he was much more of a literary guy. And my thing at the time and still is, was just movies. Like I love movies, but I, I love bad movies. And, but, but I don't love bad movies that know they're bad. And there's a big difference there. Right. right. So whenever I mentioned like bad movies, people are like, Oh, like Sharknado. It's like, no Sharknado. That's no, that's, it's telling you it's bad. I love when somebody really tries and fails like for some reason, because you feel it, right? You feel somebody's effort. You feel um, it like a toothpick out of hanging out of your mouth. <laughs> lighting up like with Cobra twin personalized 45s in your, you remember yeah. that car? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's ridiculous. So Stallone's another one of those things. I can't remember not being a fan when I was just, when I was a kid, dude, Rocky was just my favorite stuff. Uh, Rocky, the, the Rocky four, Rocky two, Rocky two is my all time favorite Stallone. That's, that's the best movie for me. Rocky two closely followed by Rocky one. But for me, Rocky two is better. Dude, um, and you know, even like cinema people will give him a lot of credit for writing Rocky. And it, I guess, I don't know, is the wrote in like a week or three days or whatever the story goes, you know, but that's like a, it's kind of regarded as like a high mark of, uh, you know, 70s cinema. Yeah. I think it's impossible to watch that movie like you would have in 76 because you, you can't help but not know him. Right. So it's gotta be weird now. I can't imagine now watching that for the first time being like, well, that's Stallone, you know? But I think when that came out, yeah, dude, people are saying he was like the next Brando and all this crazy stuff. Um, but I think that whole story is what people like. The fact that like he insisted on being in it, he insisted on, you know, being the writer and the star, they wanted to buy the script from him and just had right. to push him on. And he was like, Nope, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. And he's such a like lucky story. And the fact that things just worked out because really by all other nature, I mean, by all other 
stories, he should ended up he should have ended up a dirtbag or stayed a dirtbag. You know, he's a poor guy done good. When you're hungry and you don't have anything, it's so much harder to hang on to that creation that is yours. You know, I mean, that's probably why you guys resonate. I mean, because you but you know, oh, I'm not letting go. I'm hands on. I'm doing everything. Dude sold his dog to make money. You know what I mean? Ended up buying his dog back uh, when he got paid for the script. Like just crazy stuff like that. In the 70s too, were just such a wild time. I mean, the fact that you even have to sell your dog is crazy. But um, yeah, dude, so Stallone wise, I won't talk about him too much, but yeah, Rocky 2 is up there. Over the Top is certainly one of his better ones. Um, but yeah, I just, I've seen, I own seen, I've seen every one of his movies like a, a lot of times. It's not it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> And like I would say, uh, I was I've always told people I I unironically like him, you know, like it's not it's not like I think he's a joke. Like I especially his early work. If you watch his stuff from the 70s, it's good. Dude, it's legitimately good. Rocky and then is he, a powerhouse he, film. Talia Shire, oh yeah. Burgess Meredith. I mean, dude. Rocky. See, and that's where I double down on Rocky, too. So Rocky gets all of the attention. But Rocky, too, has so many themes that are really strong. Like if you go back and watch Rocky, too, I mean, it kind of tells his whole He's he's telling his life story like as it's happening. So basically he gets famous, he gets money and he just blows it all because he's dumb. And then they're like, you have to fight. It's almost like he had to make Rocky, too, because his other movies after that failed, you know. And but in Rocky, too, dude, they they, he he lowers that character so low. You can't help but, but feel bad for him. I mean, he ends up trying to do commercials and he can't read. And that's just sad. Then he ends up working at like a meatpacking plant and it's just, it goes so dark. Yeah. And, you know, and then he ends up fighting and like his wife can't even attend the fight. There's just so much of that. Like if you've ever, if you've ever been poor, like Rocky two for me just speaks a little louder than the first one, just because he made it and then had to suffer the like humiliation, which is to me even, even crazier. Right. Fading glory. Yes. And he's got like the newspapers being like, why are you a loser? You know, like that's even worse than ever making it in the first place. So I, I feel like that's his kind of crowning, crowning achievement. That one. And I I'm on the I'm on the wrong end of this, but I, I really like his movie Paradise Alley. Um, I think even he doesn't like it, but I think it really works. That's well, a loss. I was going to quiz you. I, I've got the Rotten Tomatoes uh, percentages. Well, let's do it. And what's your guess as to the highest rated Stallone movie? Highest rated's got to be, it's either got to be Rocky or, or it's going to be something stupid like The Expendables. Uh, Creed, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. I don't even know if I consider that a Stallone movie, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, Rocky is a very, it's neck and neck. They're kind of tied. So Rocky, the yeah. original Rocky. So what's your, what's your guess for the worst rated? Worst has got, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got to be Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. It's, it's down there, but it's actually Get Carter. Really? See, that's crazy. I love that movie. Funny story about Get Carter is that came out on my birthday in two, what is it, 2001. And I actually brought like 15 friends to that. I made them go see Get Carter for my birthday. That was our preamble to going out to Chopsticks. Uh, Cobra is uh, about right above it for the worst rated. And um, Don't Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is actually yeah. right. It's like in the middle of the pack. <laughs> I I just rewatched that not too long ago and it's 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 still bad it's just it's it's a bad movie and I I want to be able to say like it's good and like people are wrong about it but it's it's so it's so bad and it's not even fun bad you know what I mean like there's there's like like Cobra is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination it's fun though like I could sit down and watch Cobra like it's it's entertaining Stopper my mom's shoot makes the criminal error of just not even being fun to watch like it's just bad 
Yeah, it's kind of shocking some of these ratings when when you get into them. You know, Rambo's kind of in the mix, but it, you know, Expendables pretty high. But yeah, yeah, don't stop or my mom will shoot. I mean, what what was the original screenplay title for that movie, and who was the Hollywood cocaine executive that changed that title? Man, that's what I want to know. But. Yeah, they all, you know, it's one of those things. I think he claims it was more of like a dark comedy and all of this, but I'm like, there's still no way that that's a good movie, right? There's just no way. It has some charming little moments, but like, it's just when the main character is annoying, I think that never works. That's kind of the whole basis of that movie is that his mom is always in his way, but you're supposed to like sympathize with her, but you don't. And it's one of those things where like, if you can't get behind one of the characters, then you're kind of lost, you know, you have to root for somebody. Judge Dredd and Lockup are kind of like riding the bottom of the pack. And the only thing worse is Cobra, Get Carter, and then Rhinestone. Do you remember that one? Oh, dude, I've seen that. Yeah. 1984. You have to remember, I, I, dude, I've owned all of these. I've seen all of these more than like 10 times. It's sad. But yeah, yeah, Rhinestone, Rhinestone is not good. Rhinestone is actually, it's funny. He's actually the low point of that. Dolly's great in it. And it's got some, it has a lot of funny parts. It's just Stallone's not funny. And I people have always said he's funny and he's never proven it. He's not. Uh, <laughs> and I say that with I'm, I'm the man's biggest supporter, but like he's a good dramatic actor, I think, if he's given the right stuff. But like he's a great action actor, too. But, dude, his his comedies are just not good. Even Oscar. Oscar is a funny movie. He is not funny in it, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. But dude, yeah, Rhinestone's not great. Um, it's more fun to look back on it now from like a historical perspective, just to see how wild it looks and like everybody's clothes and the music and stuff. But I think he's got worse stuff than that. But um, like, uh, I'll give you what's what do you think the second worst movie is uh, on Rotten Tomatoes? It's right next That's to Get tough, Carter. They're like man. neck and neck. They said Get Carter's the worst. That's crazy to me. He's, uh, I mean, for me, I think Driven is one of his worst movies. Dude, you're, is that, is that that's low? the third worst, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> but did you, I don't know. This is so obscure. I, I had never heard of this movie. It's called Avenging Angelo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not good. That's, uh, it's a direct video of his from like Ought Two. He had a, he had a weird period there for a couple of years where he was, he was dangerous to going direct video. So he has a couple like that. Avenging Angelo is not a good movie. I'll, I'll give them that. It's yeah. not his, it shouldn't be that low. But dude, I struggle with all of those uh, ratings systems because they definitely skew towards the newer stuff, right? Right. Um, yeah. Rotten Tomatoes is know. not accurate by any stretch of the means. But I just, you know, I thought I'd, you know, it'd be a cool Stallone game, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I driven driven's a bad movie. That is dude, it's about car racing and all the cars are like CGI. Right. Like who wants to see that? And it was you know? two thousand one CGI, which is So it's not good. And you know, I mean, don't don't get me going on that. The whole excitement of a car chase is that it's real people and real cars, right? Like you're supposed to be impressed with like, wow, they they pulled this off. Once you do CGI cars, what like what are we doing? Like what yeah. are we here for? Right. <laughs> It's just, it's the same, it's like the Top Gun shot, you know, where it's just a, it's a headshot of a really intense dude, either, you know, like a Top Gun, they're flying, and so, you know, but it's the same kind of cinematic uh, style. It's just that headshot, eyes through the helmet. At least in Top Gun, they have a, they have a shot of a real plane. You know what I mean? At least it's not a computer, right. you know? Yeah, that was, you know, 87, so, but that, that was, uh, yeah. you know, from an aviation standpoint, it's pretty remarkable amount of aviation uh, cinematography, but. De Niro versus Stallone grudge match. Where do you stand on that one? It's not good. Uh, I I got a couple beefs with that movie. One is that they kind of 
I don't know. I, I don't think they gave De Niro a very good character to play. And I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Kevin Hart. Um, I don't find him to be that funny. And so he is in a lot of that and I don't feel like they needed him. Um, but it's also just, it's just, it just doesn't work. You know, it's just, it's a weird premise to me. Um, yeah, it was not on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I was excited when I heard about it, but then the actual like payoff of it just is not great. I, that one I've probably, I've not seen as, as much as some of his other recent stuff just cause it's not, it wasn't that fun for me. Well, it's, you know, that last one, because you mentioned it as one of your favorites, Paradise Alley, 1978. That's like right after Rocky. And I've never yeah. even heard, I've never seen this movie. I've never heard of it. But uh, what's your guess where that rates on uh, Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, I'm sure it's really low. It's got to be down there. And if not, it's only because people haven't seen it. 40%? Yeah. That, it's that right in the middle. Right. So, so what he's a fascinating guy in just that. So we talked about, you know, his rise was really quick as far as he had this like magical Cinderella story, right. Where he gets the script and granted he, he was in stuff before Rocky, right. But it was all like pretty low rent. And then he gets this great script and kind of trick, not tricks them. He kind of forces his way into being the star. And then he becomes this big deal. And, he follows that up with a movie called fist that doesn't really work, but he's like, okay, whatever. And then the very next movie he gets to make is called paradise alley, which is like, it's based on his script. They get, he's allowed to like write and direct and star because remember back then he was supposed to be this like big dramatic thing. And he was, he was considered like a writer and all of this stuff, dude, there's even a paradise alley book. Like that's how far they took it. And so by that point, you know, people are ready, like people are ready to turn on him. Right. So the biggest mistake he makes is he puts out this movie paradise alley and it's all him. He has no one else to blame. And it just, I love it. Cause I'm a Stallone fan, but I can be objective and tell you it doesn't really work. Um, it's a movie about like hell's kitchen in the, like, I want to say the forties and the whole plot revolves around his brother being a like underground wrestler, so already within like he already had one failure and then his very next movie, he goes back to kind of kind of the Rocky formula and people were just like not having it. Um, and the guy he cast as the as his younger brother was like an unknown. It's him, Armand Asante, in I think like his first role. And uh, this other guy's name, I can't place Lee can't Lee Canalito, I want to say was his name. And I love it, but it's just it's a weird movie. Uh, wrestling fans out there would take note that Terry Funk is in Paradise Alley, as well as a small role from Tom Waits. Jesus, you go deep. <laughs> I can also tell you that uh, Stallone regular Joe Spinell is in it, who was uh, Rocky's mob boss from the first uh, Rocky, and also um, Frank McRae, who is in a lot of early Stallone films. Um, and you, you'd recognize him if you saw him, but uh, dude, there's, yeah. Dude, I mean, Paradise Alley, written directed and stars sylvester stallone i mean dude in the in the biggest mistake he makes is if you ever watch it he sings the theme song and i think that just gives people i can't imagine being a critic then and being like this guy is even singing uh, stallone's a lot of things he's not a good singer well his brother is one hell of a guitar player and musician yes and you, as deep as you guys go with this stuff in baseball like frank stallone is deep on old music and like 50s stuff so anyway 
Yeah, so he he doesn't even use Frank as the lead singer, and also like you've got Tom Waits involved with your movie, right. and you choose right. right, and you choose to sing the theme. And Tom Waits actually on that soundtrack has a really good song. Uh, uh, I think it's called "Meet Me in Paradise Alley," uh, which is a really good song. But Stallone sings the theme, and it just sets the whole thing off poorly, right? Like e- even me, I'm like that's kind of an ego. That's a crazy ego grab, and it's from there that he ended up having to make Rocky two just to hold on. Cause basically people had turned on him already. And you know, and so his, his whole life story is to me is fascinating. Cause yeah, he makes it and then he almost loses it. Yeah. And he basically has to fall back on Rocky. And then he lucked out with first blood and they gave him Rambo. Dude. If you look at his filmography, every time he starts to slip, he just goes back to one of those and just stays relevant. Well, smart. that's one of his other directing credits is Rambo four, which is right on the, what's what brackets paradise alley and rotten tomatoes is Rambo four and uh, Rocky four, both directed See, and I w- by Sil- Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, and I would say Rocky Four, dude. Rocky Four should be up there. That movie is so fun. That is a that is such a fun, good movie. Rocky Four. I can't find anything. I mean, it's a dumb movie, but it's so good. It's a fun, fun movie. Um, and Rambo Four gets a bad rap. That's actually a shockingly good movie. I would say that's the best one since First Blood. I'm not a huge Rambo fan either. I I don't really. Those are the Rambo two and three are probably some of the films of his that I've watched the least. Those just I'm yeah. not. Those, those aren't for me. Uh, but Rambo, which is technically Rambo 4, uh, is, I think, really good. It's really violent, uh, but in a more realistic way than some of those other ones are. I just It's interesting to me what movies that he gets the directing credit, you know, where it's him in the chair, you know, because, uh, you know, he's worked with a lot of directors, dude, you know. Yeah. And it's there's There isn't this, like, you know tarantino uh brad pitt kind of connection it's like you know he's just all over the place it seems like on the on the directors but yeah and i think you know and i can relate to this in a way as i think he also kind of like we were talking about he's, he's a real control guy and i think sometimes he ends up being the director out of like you're not doing it like i want right so he kind of takes over I've i've heard that about him um he also a lot of times will get writing credits just because he insists on doing his own dialogue and then just insists on getting a writing credit so he's not always the best look as far as like a dude especially a guy who came from nothing you know he's kind of turned into the cliche of then he ends up being the guy that's like the control guy but um the weirdest credit for me for him is he actually directed staying alive the sequel to saturday night fever and he's not in it so he straight up directed that movie. And I don't know if you've ever seen Staying Alive, but it is, for my money, the worst thing that Stallone's ever been involved with. I mean, that isn't is, that when they go to Broadway to be dancers? Yeah. Yeah. I have seen that movie. Yeah. It is. It is nearly unwatchable. <laughs> I mean, I because <laughs> talk about something that's like fun for about 10 minutes and then it's like, OK, like this joke is old and it's just it's yeah, it's just travolta dancing in like cat outfits for 90 minutes it's rough yeah and stallone directed that like he was still considered enough of an artist at that point to like just be a sole director isn't that weird it's crazy because you know to watch his career and then to get so huge in the 90s and i'd like to think he's he's one of those good guys you know like if if you actually saw him you know he'd be affable and he'd he'd be cool like uh, like on the flip side of that have you ever heard the kevin smith bruce willis story yes yeah i mean you know yeah i hate the ones that scream hard the most you know like that that's <laughs> what hollywood does to you and so when you when you can have a career that spans that long and not turn into one of those guys it's you know i don't know saying yeah always better I, 
I think it's also just kind of that business, you know, I think, and I think this is with anything. I think the personality you need, I've seen this with musicians. I mean, most of the most talented musicians that I know don't have the personality to go succeed in that, right? Because you have to have a weird ego to think that you deserve it. And I think those are the, sadly, I think those are the guys that end up making it the most or more the guys that have that ego that think that like, yep, I deserve that. For sure. And, you know, we grew up in that era, the rock star era where, and and this is the same thing where the industry has changed. It's gone on its head where instead of limousines and uh, airplanes and get make way, make way, no autographs. We're, you know, and there's just throngs of people, you know, now they're, you know, it's like meet and greet, you know, that's where they get their money is doing meet and greets before the show. I mean, the rock star thing has just died. I mean, for the most part with with a couple of exceptions here and there, but you want to make it a music now, you better... You better be out there engaging. Well, and I think people, I think people now can stay on top for a lot longer because of that, right? If you have a good Twitter presence, you never fade, right? You, you never fade from your audience. So I see that a lot with, I mean, I was, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. I'm like, I bet we're the first generation that got to see like our film stars just keep on being film stars. Like look at Tom Cruise. That guy's still headlining movies other than Sean Connery, who was able to pull that off for all those years. I can't think of any other time where you had people that were as famous for as long as they are now. And I think it's just because of that, like you can stay relevant and stay on top where before if kind of the industry quote unquote decided you were done, you were done. You didn't have another voice, right? Yeah. Whereas now I think, you know, those guys that make it, they can stay there for a lot longer just because of that. They stay so engaged. So the downside of today, though, is that it's hard to find those good songs because everybody can release them. And I, and I, I don't know what's better. You know, it's like I sometimes for fun just go through Bandcamp. Just to, I pick a city or pick a genre and just I'll listen to some stuff. And it's amazing how much bad stuff out there there is you know yeah and the time that you are willing to dedicate to yeah i'll i'll see what this is like i'll hear it out it's just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and i remember um in one of the bands i was in here in tucson i joined i started playing drums in this band called the monitors that was here that is here and they had already been a band for a long time before i joined and i happened to be a a fan of theirs my wife uh, worked with their original drummer who later moved to guitar. So Morgan and I learned that they were in a band and just downloaded their stuff. It was a huge fan. I am so glad you brought this up because I almost forgot. Uh, I wanted to get to the fire department. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, so we'll get there. The, um, the monitors records, you know, they have, they're really good, really well recorded and the guitar is really great, you know, but your drums on the fire department, they just are really, they stand out, you know, they have a funny story. So those three guys, Vakas, Tommy and Morgan have been friends for a long time. They're like local Tucson guys. Tommy was originally their drummer. And then he has some issues like with his hands. He has like bone issues where basically his doctor was like, you can't play drums anymore. What's funny about them is that Morgan. So Tommy's a great drummer. Morgan in the monitors is one of the best drummers I've ever seen. Like, and I've been around a lot of talented, I think talented musicians and Morgan's crazy good. So they already had this like great drummer, like in waiting. So he was, he was playing guitar. So basically they just switched. And Tommy is another one of those guys I think makes a great like second guitar player. So for a, so for a, a while, they rec- they would write songs and record as a three piece, and then Morgan would just also play guitar like when they recorded. And so then they got a drummer, so Morgan could move back. And so the big pressure for me, dude, when I joined that band is I hadn't played drums in almost a decade. 
Like I'd packed up my drums. Like when I moved out here, I just kind of stopped doing anything musically for a while. So when I joined that band, I was real rusty. And not only that, but I had to play in front of drummers. Like two, I've never had that experience before where two of the three bandmates were really legit drummers. And I was able to make it, but that was kind of a funny thing with that band is that, yeah, I, the whole time in the back of my head, I was like, I know these guys are better than me, which was a funny feeling. Um, it seemed like the net effect that had on your playing style on the, on that particular fire department record is that you really focused on just solid pocket, you know, in the zone drumming, you know, it wasn't the crazy Eric drums that maybe exist on some other songs. You know, it was Eric, it was professional Eric to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you noticed that. Cause that was kind of the whole experience there is that just, it was, and those guys would tell you the same thing. It was just two different schools of thought, right? I came from a much more ramshackle approach. Uh, I was always, I mean, if you listen to any, music that i've recorded as far as like with guitars and drums i mean i think the last thing on any of our minds would have been like holding the time it was just about like let's do it loud let's do it fast whatever sounds good feels good those guys definitely had a much different approach and they were much more technical than me so like um that was always a big focus was like not only you know keeping everything tight but also like they're they're they would call me out if I was even like a, like if the song went a little bit off beat or like when a little, like, like if the rhythm faded or speeded up at all. And that was a new experience for me. I'd never really had a band care. I certainly had a band's care about like playing the right stuff at the right time, but it was just something I had never really cared about. Um, so that was a funny experience and they were just, yeah, much more technical as far as they're playing. It's a palpable difference. It's a tangible difference that you yeah. can, that I really notice. You know, it's like a brick house powerhouse. You're hitting the drums harder. You're really, you know, like in the the other bands, you're t- you're living fast. You're taking chances, and it's awesome, and it's working. And in the fire on the fire department record, not only is your playing like really kicked up a notch, but the the quality of that recording in particular. And this is where I, I, I want to say his name wrong. Is it? Vikas. 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 Vikas is, yeah. Am I to understand that he's the main engineer for all those monitors records and the fire department records? Yes. So that, that's the funny thing. All three of those guys could, could record too. And I'll say this for anyone out there that's listening. I am not a technical person at all. I'm actually a big anti-technical. Like I barely even know the name of my own stuff. Um, and that was kind of by design, right? I've never been into that side of it. Like I just want to get a good sound. Um, I was even giving this advice to somebody the other day because we were talking about recording and I was like, you know, even on my eight track, I only ever used maybe five, 10% of its capability. And I think it sounds good. It's that whole thing about making it accessible, right? So like, yes, you can get crazy good at all that stuff. But for me, I was just never interested, but these guys definitely were. And I'm, and I'm cool with that. Like, I think like to your point, they get a whole different sound out of it. I mean, those drums sound big because Vikas makes them sound big, you know, like he has that talent. Um, it helps that he's got other drummers in the band, but yeah, he's definitely the driving force there. So like when we were in the monitors, he played bass. I mean, he's a great, he's, Yet again, another one of those guys I ended up hooking up with that he can pick up a guitar or a bass and just do what he wants with it. Like he has no limitation. Um, he is a fantastic guitar player. I mean, some of those guitar lines, he's just, you know, one amazing guitar player. And, you know, the engineering skills on that, like the kick drum on that fire department record is just ear butter. Like from an engineering standpoint, it just is, oh man, that sounds good. And the separation that he got on that record is incredible. And the drums are like the centerpiece of that record. Whereas a lot of the monitor stuff, it was much more centered around guitar. And to me, 
my favorite part about those old monitors records were the drums. Cause I was like, these guys are crazy. Like whether it's Tommy, but especially like Morgan, like he's just doing stuff that I cannot do. And so I always kind of felt bad joining them. Cause I was like, man, if there's anybody out there that liked them for the reasons I did, like I'm a different drummer, you know, like I, the world I grew up in and the musicians that I hung out with, we like, that was not the focus, like doing fancy fills and work was not it. It was just playing, like I said, hard, fast, loud, whatever. Um, you know, like what I learned from Onug was like um, the idea of quiet and loud, but it certainly wasn't like crazy technique and all of that. Um, I've never had drum lessons, you know, I just kind of learned. And so joining them was a big learning curve. And so the monitors, I joined them for a couple albums kind of towards the end there. And then Tommy, for reasons I can't remember, he basically couldn't play for a while. And so we weren't going to do the monitors without him but we all still kind of wanted to play. And that was where the fire department came from. Um, one of their long running kind of gags is they have, they like to mess with like the, they like to use names from old songs for other records for like album titles and vice versa. And so we kind of looked back through some old song titles and we we're like, well, the fire department would be a great band name, which was a monitor song, if which I was a monitor song. Right. And that I didn't even play on, I don't think. And so we, for a, for a couple practices, we practiced with Morgan and Vikas on their normal, so like Vikas on bass and Morgan on guitar. I think we even tried to practice with me playing bass or guitar or something. We were just kind of messing around, like, how can we make it different? Because so we didn't want it to sound exactly like the monitors without Tommy, basically. And so the natural thing seemed to be like, well, you know, Vikas is a good guitar player and Morgan's a good bass player. So let's just switch those and see how that works. And that that's kind of how that happened. Um, that to me is the best part because like Vikas was sort of like you were in CAC. He's the main driving force, the main composition yes. guy. And you got to be Brad and just chill and play drums, you know, just well, well, not that's probably a horrible analogy, but you see where I'm going. No, I totally agree. And what was funny, the monitors, you know, being in that band, I thought that too. And then when I was in the practices, it was really Tommy. Tommy, um, who I think is a great guitar player, he was kind of, he had a very distinct idea where you'd play something and he would just be like, no or yes, you know? And the other guys would kind of go with that. Um, and if you knew Tommy, he's he, he's he's that guy, right? He's that like, nope. Uh, we even have a great song. One of the last songs we recorded with them, it's a funny story I remember, it's called We Could. And it's a really catchy song. And I remember Tommy wasn't fully sold on it. So he thought it was like too catchy. So his whole purpose on his second guitar was he, was just, he just played the like ugliest notes that he could. And we all thought that was really funny. So now every time I hear it, I just hear Tommy just being a jerk. And I think that's hilarious. You know what I mean? He was just like, oh, you think you have a catchy song, Vikas? Well, here we go. And so we're that was kind of the bounds of our creative uh, license here and how much we're going to let each other get away with. Yeah. And I, and I think you need that, right? Like, I think that with any good band, I think you definitely need somebody to be like your other, you're kind of to check each other. Like Matt and I were always really good about that. And same with Brad and I, where I'd be like, that line doesn't work. And he told the same thing to me. Like, it just doesn't work. Um, I think you need that. He, and those guys were a little older than me. So they came from an even different school. Like he was like an echo in the bunny men guy. You know what I mean? Like just oh. a very different, yeah, just a different upbringing. And uh, Vikas had grown up like a metal guy, which definitely comes out in his playing. I remember he once, cause I used to just make him play riffs for me just for fun. I love that stuff. Being like, just, just I would be like, just shred. And he could do it on command. Him and Nate are probably the two best people I can see that can just shred on command. Um, 
Onug. Uh, so, but Vikas said, yeah, he's like, when I was growing up, you know, we would just put on Iron Maiden and just play it over and over and just play along to it. So that's how he trained himself was just playing these like just gnarly guitar parts just repetitively. So he and his friends would do kind of like what Brad and I did with rap or they would just try to like out solo each other and stuff. Dude, this is where you and Vikas to me are very similar. And like, it, it's one thing to be an artist and write a song and then go into a studio and have everybody else take care of the recording part. You know, you get so burnt out when you're the guy, you know, doing the majority of the writing. Then you have to record it all. Then you have to sit there and listen to it and mix it and master. I mean, it's 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 so. There's a great Jim Morrison quote where he's like, "Yeah, I can never be a producer or engineer." It's whoever does that has to have an incredible amount of patience. You know, you, you just have to be there all the time and there you can't, you know, go away and uh, where everybody yeah. else just gets to kind of have fun. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that's, that's the recording part is what I used to love the most was like recording and then doing all the work after, right? The actual recording process to me was never that fun. Like trying to get people to get their takes and all of that. I mean, that part's okay. I like the after part of like trying to make it sound good and like messing with the song he also liked that, but to that point, we were also older and he had like a full-time job. And so it was really a lot more, I felt bad for him in that respect. Cause I knew what kind of time it took. And it was like, not only that, but like when I was doing that, I had nothing, you know what I mean? I didn't have kids or a wife or anything. And he was doing this with like a full-time gig. And so, yeah, I definitely, I think burned him out. Uh, the good side of that was that he and I always played very well together. Like I, you know, as a bass player, I, I could kind of see where he was going a lot. Um, the unique thing with the monitors and in the, and the fire department is that was the first and only band that I've been in where they truly wrote their songs together, like in practice, which was a new thing for me. Um, I had always been in bands where somebody brought the song, right. Or brought parts of the song. And we would just show up, sit down and start kind of messing around. And like a lot of times Morgan would have like a part or Vacost might have a part and they would just like craft these songs. To me, those are some of the best songs I've played on. I mean, J names from balcony seats to me is a perfect song. That's one of the greatest songs I've ever played on. Um, and then some of those fire department songs are really good too. I'm going to play you uh, what I thought was my favorite song of the fire department record. Ooh.
I mean, dude, that, <laughs> when the two guitars come in right like halfway through, you know, it is just like that is mixing, like really good mixing. He's really good at that. So funny story with that song is I uh, that came out of us messing around. That came out of the one practice where I played bass and I wrote that uh, the first bass line. I think Morgan added the little second, the little second piece to it, the far, the part that kind of goes up and down. So I just played that one loop over and over again. That do 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 do. That's a great um, riff. I had no idea you wrote that. Made it up on the spot. Dude. I can't remember how it goes now. It was just one of those. You know, sometimes you just pick you pick the guitar up and you just start messing around. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so we played. So we messed around with that for a while, and then we we're like, okay, let's try that, but we'll switch back. And then. I played drums, then Morgan, you know, added his part to it and they made up the rest of it. But what was funny, and that's like the only like musical, musical input I had in any of that. So it's funny that you picked that. Um, But what was funny, this gets back to me being a terrible bandmate with control is I remember Morgan trying to kind of like mess around with the line and kind of like play with it. I was like, no, like it's got to be this. It's got to be the straight up like do, 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 like the whole time. Um, And I get like weirdly controlling about that stuff. And I know I do it and I just can't stop. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, nope, it must be this. And for them, that was funny because they were always this like, hey, like, let's try all this stuff. And I was like, that's my baseline and you'll play it this way. Um, (laughs) But I think the cost will be happy that that song appealed to you because that song was the one that I remember him always being like, I want more songs like this. Like whenever we would get to practicing, he'd be like, let's try to write another one like that. And we just you just couldn't but he really liked those songs that kind of that song just kind of flows into parts rather than having there be like hard changes which is what he was really into oh and dude like you you could have wrecked that song on the drums in so many ways and the restraint that you have on that song for, for like you know just in the main riff when you're like doom, doom, just to not do that every time and then at the very end of the song getting that little up upswing it's the one and only time you do it you could have done that the whole song you didn't those speaking of pro tips those are lessons hard learned that's what um i learned a lot of that from playing with like onug who's nate um and fargo and just that idea so like onug's whole big thing was like you know, there's got to be a quiet and a loud dynamics was always the big word for, for him. When I was in a band with him was dynamics. Like you can't just play loud. It was funny. I was talking with the widget guys just the other day and we were talking about, this is a big thing that pond does. And that I've always tried to do is you, you, you play the catchiest part, the least, right? So then you never get sick of it. And it always keeps people wanting to come back. I thought I always thought that was a genius thing that some bands do. Like the Minutemen were really good at that pond. Um, does a thing that we used to call the pond ending where they would do instead of having like a like 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 a bridge they would have a brand new part be the last part of a song so they would do like verse chorus verse chorus and then do like what's what we would call a pond ending where it'd be a whole new part and then the song's over and you're like wait i want to hear that part again you know what i mean um it's like manufacturing consent yeah yeah. And that was stuff too that I, um, Vikas and Morgan were both really into and, and, and Tommy as well was just like, not was trying to get stuff that wasn't so obvious as just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, instrumental part, chorus out. You know what I mean? Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That was a song. I definitely think it worked. That song was really fun to play live too. That song really worked when we would play it. But yeah, it was also just watching how they created was very different. And but they all knew how each other played. That was a fascinating part for me. 
is it wasn't weird for them. Just like when I have a funny story about recording the widgets. When I recorded them in 01, we had to do everything. So if, if you record on a digital eight or like on a four track, you know, you can't do it live, right? So we'd have to like record the drums separately and then do the bass. So you have to kind of know where you're at. And I learned through that process that the widgets, for example, they didn't count things off. They just kind of played. So we had like this instrumental part. And I remember being like, okay, well, how many, like, does this go like 16 lines, whatever? And they'd be like, what do you mean? They're like, we just kind of play until like, you know, Doug does this thing. And then we all kind of come back in. I'm like, so they were playing without even counting bars or lines, which was new to me. Because like in practice, we'd always be like, okay, this is going to go for three lines, four lines. The widgets were just like playing, which was crazy to me. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see how different bands work. And it's just, once again, that's what works for them. That story just reminds me so much of the early days of digital aids. Because yeah, you couldn't just record everything live. Because you didn't, number one, you didn't have the inputs required. But even if you did, you, the processing power wasn't great enough to run, you know, eight tracks at once. So you, you were inevitably forced into the overdub bin. Where, you know, you got to do the drums, then you put everything on top. And when, when there aren't count-ins, lead-ins, uh, there's no metronome going on. And man, it gets tough in a hurry. Yeah. So we would have to discuss beforehand. And this was with, I recorded not only my own stuff, but I, I recorded some stuff for the widgets. And I also recorded a couple punk records uh, for this guy named Johnny Cat, who was a really cool guy. He was a friend of ours through this um, guy named Toby that Brad was friends with. And Toby and him were in a band called the Black Rebels. And I recorded their first 45. And then also Johnny then later had a band called the Triggers, who ended up being moderately like popular. And they, um, I recorded their first 45 and some stuff that went on some compilations and then another band of Johnny's called the Pistons but going through with bands like that that were new to this process it was always kind of interesting because yeah it'd be like okay drummer's got to click off because we're going to use that as like the starting point but then if there was any point in the song where the drums went out the drummer would have to keep a click because I wasn't using a metronome I'm too cool for that right uh, but also all the people I was recording like we don't use metronomes and you can't really hear a metronome when you're drumming at least with my setup and so it'd be like okay you're gonna play the drums with a scratch guitar in your ear but you're gonna have to click to keep the beat so everybody knows when to come back it so if yeah. there's like a break, you know, and that was the biggest challenge was just getting that initial drum track down. But to your point, I would mic in four mics into the eight tracks. So I'd have um, I always recorded drums as a drummer. I liked to record drums and angle them like I was sitting at the drum set. So if you listen to drums, I record typically the bass drum straight in the middle, the snare and the hi-hat are more towards the left and the other side is towards the right. And then I would just, and then I would just have an overhead uh, mic just to capture everything. Right. And so you'd have those on four tracks and you can mix those up, but then I'd have to get those onto one of the stereo channels. So once you mix those drums, you can't mix them anymore. Right. So I, once you're done, you're done. Like that's what you have on that one digital channel because the digital eight is really a four track with two, what they call stereo channels. And that's at the end of the day, you still have to take it into a studio. Whereas a four track, yeah. you can at least dump it into a tape deck, which you probably have at the house. Yeah. That's the, the early days of digital eight recording, man. That pioneer stuff. I mean, yes. putting the word engineer is really in there. I mean, so right. When we went to go master the CAC album, for example, with Mike Lastra, I had to bring in my digital eight track and basically punch stuff in and out as it was happening to get it into his system. So any of the drums that like break out or any of the parts where I was punching in and out, I was doing that live in the mastering studio, like in the studio, like talk about pressure, like I'm paying by the hour. Right. And 
if I mess up, we got to start all the way over again. I had everything tracked out and written out, but you still just have to punch. And anyone that's used those digital aids knows that the punch isn't exactly reliable. They would sometimes have a lag. And if it lagged at all, they didn't have to start all the way over. Um, nightmare, just a nightmare. So I didn't even bring a mix CD in. I, I brought in the, the whole eight track to master, which was just stupid. Yeah. The digital eight punch was notoriously <laughs> bad. You'd, you'd, you'd either have to jump it or you'd, it would lag or, you know, it never, it was tough. But then on the other hand, man, if I look at 2000, the fact that we had a digital eight track, I mean, that was unheard of even in 1997. You know what I mean? Just in 1997, like I knew one guy that had like a four track and that was like a big deal. Like it was just really prohibitive to get yourself onto any sort of recording device. And so for us, the digital eight was such a gigantic improvement, you know, and it ended up, and it was really cool to us at the time. By the time 2004 rolled around, it was like archaic. It was really weird. It was a really weird specific time to be messing with recording and all of that. And everything just jumped around so fast, but yeah, dude, recording those bands, man, that would take, it would take me an entire weekend to do like three songs. Cause you have to do the drums and then mix the drums while everybody's sitting there in your headphones, mix them onto another track and then dump all their, all the other tracks, get rid of them to make space and then do guitar guitar. And then I'd, and then I'd mix those guitars and dump those onto the other stereo channel. And that would give me four tracks left for bass and then vocals. You might as well be recording on a four track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the thing. I mean, like when I got the digital eight and that's why on the early CAC stuff, I panned everything to the left because I didn't understand how the stereo channels worked with simple ignorance. I put them over onto those things. I'd mix them, but I didn't know how to stereo pan them. So just learning through experience. But um, to me, though, that also keeps you honest. I, I oh, the thing I drives me nuts is Bandcamp gives you too much almost. Right. And I can hear that on people's home recordings where it's like, you know, you don't need effects on every single track on every single thing. Um, I, I was always kind of happy that we were limited in a way because it kind of makes you get all the other garbage out. It's um, clean. It gets yeah. real clean. Yeah. And that on home recording, I, I, I think the more effects you have, at least back then, the more effects, the worst it would sound overall. Um, so I would only, I would really hesitate to put like big effects on things. And I was, and, and if you are going to have an effect, it should be like a big part of that song. It should be like, hey, this is like a special part, not just, hey, what effect can we put on the guitar for this song? Like for me, I'm, I'm going to put the same effect on all the guitars unless you're doing something unique, you know. But um, on the early digital eights that, you know, the in, they were really kind of crampy inboard uh, you know, reverbs and stuff like that. Whereas now today, people are just they don't know what to do without those effects, especially <laughs> especially guitar players like to just have clean guitar like is, yeah you know and that's what i think what is the fire department record is so good those those drums are clean dude yeah know? and the guitars are they're distorted but they're clean and there's really only effects on a couple of solos and but today's today's uh, you know bands so much of it i mean the vocals are drenching and you know harmonizers and melodies and reverb and I mean, dude, it's like they, they can't live without those effects, you know? Well, it's that whole thing of just because you can doesn't mean you always should. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and dude, part of the thing recording back then on the digital eight is you had to pre-select the effect, right? So if I'm going to put your guitar through like a distortion, let's say we had to pick it before we recorded it and we were stuck with it. So it was printed. Yeah. Yes. And so a lot of that time was spent trying to get the right sound where now that I'm getting used to Bandcamp, So like, Brad mentioned on on his episode with you, I, I just stopped. I didn't do anything musical for really like a decade. And I just didn't want to get into it again. I just I just 
I mean, I was playing on my own and played drums here and there, but like, I just didn't really want to get into computer recording just because I wasn't good at it yet. Oh, I should mention here, one of the other projects I just picked up, um, I mentioned way a long time ago that I recorded half of a new widgets album back in 2005. We didn't get to finish it for a variety of reasons. And they were all kind of interested in at a place where we can right now. And so telling those guys, I was like, look, you can just record a guitar and send it to me. I can do everything after the fact, right? Because we were trying to work out like, how are we going to do this? And I was like, if you just send me a clean guitar, we can, we can, we can do anything, which is wild. I can't imagine having that freedom back in 2000 when I was like super active, you know, just being able to get the guitar part right and then worry about, oh, should we put a reverb or put an effect or whatever you want to do? It's like the color wheel in uh, Apple or Photoshop, you know, like you can go, you know, red, blue, green, black, or, you know, when you get into the color wheel, it's like, oh, dude, this is too many possibilities for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the pre-talk that we had where I was like, look, even though we have all this possibility, like we're still going to keep it simple because it's going to sound better. You know, like I was saying earlier, it drives me nuts when I can hear somebody's band camp recording and I can tell it's just like they put an effect on every single instrument. And like, you don't always need that, you know, and it's, believe me, it's tempting. It's fun to play around with those things. And believe me, we played with effects on the digital eight because it was new at the time. It was just crazy that I could put like distortion on drums. Cancel and career is simply me just like having fun with this eight track. It was like one of the first rap songs that we recorded and I was like, I can distort the drums. Like, let's just do that, you know? And I got better on the next record with like being up. I learned how to record multiple drum tracks on the digital eight with different effects and then punch them in and out. So if you listen to like 1997, there's, I think there's three different drum tracks I have going on with different effects that I would have bounced all onto one drum track at the end. Yeah, dude. And the crazier thing is like, I don't know if you have an iPhone, but they have this uh, music memos where it's like AI or whatever, and it, it knows what key. You just, you basically just play a guitar riff, and then you can put an AI drummer and an AI bass player under it. And it's uh, it the computer makes choices that are so insane sometimes, you know, especially in terms of those bass lines. Like if you set it to super complex, and you, you start getting things that you never would have dreamed of doing or no bass player, but they really work, and it's kind of frightening. <laughs> and that's one of those things I can see both sides of it, you know. Like I was always privileged to know – incredibly good musicians so if i needed something i knew who to go to but i also can see that like if i'm somebody and i live in a small town i don't know anybody what a great gift to have though right like i can like i can have a great baseline on this song and not be punished for the fact that i live in the middle of nowhere but yeah the purist in me is like oh you should have a real bass player on there but then I've also been the like lonely kid in an apartment and what a cool thing that would be, right? To have like a sweet baseline added to your song. <laughs> well, yeah. And th- this is where the composition factor comes in because now, you know, you're, it's doing things that you never would have dreamed of. And now you're going to use those things. And it's really become a part of the writing process. And it's not just, you know, oh, I now have the technology to record a guitar part and then record my bass part. And it, I mean, it's literally you do, you can just talk into the thing. It'll figure out the key, the pitch, and it'll you know, put music behind it. I mean, it's a brave new world. When it, I mean, there's been several times where I've had a little riff or whatever, and I fired it in there and the bass, the AI bass does this crazy thing where I'm like, Oh, that's so cool. I'm going to use that, you know? And that's the, that's the crazy factor. Yeah. And you know, and that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that was the thrill of like playing with other people, right. Is like, um, there's certain songs that I would bring in to like a darlings practice, let's say, and Nick would put a guitar part over it that then became the part. 
So when I listen to those songs, I'm like, how did we ever get to there? You know, it's like you would think that Nick came in with that part, but like, because that's the part that makes the song. So what I what I originally brought in was boring compared to what he did. And same thing with um, our friend Joe Talik is a great example of that, dude. You 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 could Joe Talik is a great bass player who can make anybody sound like a million dollars. You know what I mean? I could play three chords and Joe would make me sound like a million bucks. And that is so much fun to have. That's one of my favorite parts about playing music is you get. And I've been, like I said, spoiled with I'm an average musician who rolls with a lot of talented musicians. So I get to <laughs> have people really like spice up stuff um, around me, which is really fun. And but yeah, I've had that experience a lot where it's like, wow, I could listen to that song and be like, this is the part that started it, which I thought was great. And then now it's like, nope, that wouldn't be a good song without this other part yeah i mean talik uh on that's the, those six downy uh songs is pretty awesome the computer now it's like a bandmate and the ai whatever software algorithm I mean, music is just math and harmony and interval for the most part and the computer you know has already run through a million possibilities but you're collaborating with a piece of software now you know where it used to be a band member so it's uh, to me it's gonna get crazy and then like yeah. just like from 2000 to 2010 was like the the epic uh, days of the inboard uh, hard digital eight, digital 12, digital 16s with huge hard drives that could fire out a CD. And it was a self-contained unit. It was a studio in a box. You know, that's, that's where music is going now. Uh, collaborating with computers big time. Yeah. And that, that's interesting to me. And like I said, I see the good and the bad, right? I see that. I think that's great for some. I also think sometimes that can be a weird I don't know. That could almost be like you end up with a product that maybe you don't necessarily didn't put the time in for, you know, and maybe that's the old guy in me coming out. Cause like I said, I just admitted that like anything that's really good on any of my recordings, somebody else did. The musicianship of having to play your instrument and in terms of your own personal musical limitations, actually being a contributing factor to your compositional structure. But on that other end, I mean, my big thing all throughout, I'm a big believer in, in accessibility. I, I, what drives me <clears throat> more wild than anything else is when people try to make, I'm going to sound really pretentious for a second. Okay. So bear with me is when people try to make art exclusive, that drives me nuts. You know, I, I'm not a fan of going to like an art exhibit or like a museum just because it's, I know friends that can do the equal equal without it being a big pretentious affair, right? I don't need wine and cheese to go look at my friend's painting. Um, I don't need it to cost $400. That's just crazy to me. But in music, I see people that try to do that through one way or the other. They try to make it's in, I've been lucky that I always had friends that even though they were insanely good musicians, were always very welcoming and very encouraging. You know, a guy like Nate, for example, you know, Nate spent his whole childhood just copying Van Halen and Frank Zappa songs, learning them on guitar. He's an insane guitar player. He easily could have looked at somebody like me, a little 19 year old punk and been like, you're not good enough or whatever. And instead he was always very encouraging and was very welcoming, was willing to teach me stuff. And I was lucky enough to have that. I feel like a lot of people don't have that experience. Um, even, you know, when I, sh I was showing my nephew guitar, he's God, nine, 10 now, um, a, a while ago. And I was like, it's easy, man. Like here's bar chords. All you really need are bar chords. Right. And I wish somebody would have shown me that when I was in high school, like I just figured out guitar on my own, but like people try to make music this very exclusive club of like, you have to be 
this really technically sound blah 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 and it's like i don't think you do you know that's why i was a big fan of like the k record stuff early punk and all that because it's just like no like anybody can do it i get how people could be against that but i think it's cool because at least somebody could turn their basic playing into like a cool song and it might encourage them to get better if i can turn this crappy three chord song and the computer helps me make it sound like a real song that's only going to encourage me right i'm not going to feel bad well that's the other you know like in garage band you can hit you can roll the dice you know and it's uh you, you plug a riff in or whatever and say you're trying to do drums to it or bass or whatever it is automated on a midi map you just midi grid you, you know roll the dice you get a different result i mean it, like at some point the future it, you're just gonna you're gonna you're not even gonna have a creative thought or any kind of passion or drive you're just gonna hit a button and it's gonna like well m- monkeys and shakespeare you know well look at it this way i mean maybe it's an updated version of like um i had an old organ that would kind of do that right you could put it on certain settings and once i started playing it would just play the bass part along with me I have a song, one of the, one of the, uh, go for glory songs is that it's me playing on an organ and it just plays the bass part along with me that's programmed in. And so, you know, I, I think that kind of cheating's maybe always kind of been there. Um, dude, speaking of this might be off topic for your show, but I watched, there's this great documentary on Netflix called the wrecking or it used to be on Netflix called the wrecking crew. Did you happen to watch this? I've, I've not seen it, but I've heard people talk about it and it's supposed to be awesome. You would dig it because basically it's about this band of session musicians that just did all of the backing music in like the late 60s. There's like on anything pop, rock, whatever it was. So rather than them spending time on having the like band that brought in the songs, they were like, no, nah, I, I know these guys. I can just crank them out. And it was that weird feeling of like, man, all of these songs by all these different bands were really played by the same group of people which isn't that crazy. So like the mamas and the papas was one of the examples they used where they're like, Oh yeah, they're up playing on California dreaming. That's us. And nobody knew it back then. Yeah. But I, right. I forget. I wish I could remember her name right now, but she played bass on a lot of like beach boy songs. And I think she's that, in that doc. That lady played bass on everything. And yeah. I, I'm with you. I had never, I was ashamed of myself. I had never heard of any of them until I watched this movie. And I consider myself a pretty deep nerd, you know, like, but I was stunned. But anyways, that goes back to like, I think we've all, I think music's been cheating all of us all this time. You know, I think like one of my favorite documentaries in that vein is the stacks record documentary on Netflix. That is a fascinating story of money and music and crime and just, Oh man. It's funny. Brad and I always talk about how we, you know, uh, for a while when they were doing those documentaries, just about like one specific album, it would be like how a band recorded whatever. And we were like, man, I could watch any of those, even about albums. I don't even know or care about, you know, I could sit down and watch like Steely Dan break down an album for an hour. I just find that stuff so interesting. Um, I'm saying that as a, I don't, not a Steely Dan fan. So, well, I I am, and I've seen those and those guys were (laughs) beasts. They brought in session player. Like they would have like the, um, a lot of those guitar solos, you know, they would just next, next all day just uh, you know until they found the guy that just clicked the best and that's you know they would use the best parts i mean dude watching those guys behind the board break down their own songs and you know doing it on tape i mean dude i could watch that all day for sure yeah Yeah. well and so let's look at it that way maybe so maybe this whole idea of i can plug in a guitar and it fills in everything it just it brings it brings the studio musician to everybody once again it, it makes it equal right? It's equalizing. It's, it's giving the poor guy in the apartment the, the same as the same advantage as the guy in the LA studio. It's just a different, just a different form. So I'm, I'm actually, you know what, through, 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 through this interview, I think I've made up my mind. I'm pro computer backing. <laughs> 
just for that it makes it equal if you use it to augment an already you know um original composition and you've already got all these songs floating in your head it's great but when you when it when that becomes the main creative force you know and uh, like steely dan just rolling in 100 guitar players a day until they found the guy that landed the solo that that's a lot like rolling the dice in garage band you know it just costs a lot more money back then you know totally you want to do any plugs uh, to kind of wrap this up i mean obviously slyrecords.com there's i guess the widgets release uh that's going to be coming out is going to be dope um the new walk and fuss album the stallion definitely check it out anything you want to plug uh, as we close it out here I think you said it. I think that's the big thing. I think if you, I think Walk and Fuss, The Stallion is an amazing record. If you haven't heard it, pick it up. It's it's free. Uh, if you want to purchase one, that's great, but it's free there for you. We'll soon be having a old, new Widgets EP of different takes of songs that we recorded that uh, I know we all really like. And then we'll also be releasing the Dearling Darlings album, which is Nick and Becky from The Widgets me and then Devin Gallagher from uh, Typhoon and the Black Black Black, a uh, little time capsule from 2005. And then somewhere down the road, we will definitely re- be releasing the Widgets' long awaited third album, Bring Out the Badger, which is going to be a lost gem from 2005. So stay tuned and uh, can't wait for yeah. that. I um, just personally, I had to buy a new Walk and Fuss t shirt because I wore the old one out. So I bought a, a brand new Walk and Fuss t-shirt. I did the CD combo. Uh, loving it. And he's, so cre- and he's so creative with those graphics and how he got that to be the old like SummerSlam logo into his name and all that. It's just wild stuff. He's he's really talented. Yeah, definitely. And we will, uh, I'll put links to uh, the majority of the stuff. We covered a lot of ground today, so I'll have to yeah. <laughs> pick and choose which links. Yeah. And uh, as always, the 525 Records podcast brought to you by the Seaside Brewing Company in uh, Seaside, Oregon. Check it out. Employee number 99. Uh, They have a great menu full of uh, awesome beer. Also on the 525 Records site, we have the brand new Klaus Fluoride Tribute sticker. If you're a Dead Kennedys fan, it's only a dollar. They're awesome. Uh, You can't get them anywhere else. Only on the 525 store. Um, If you're into Klaus Fluoride and you want a vintage Denmark auto touring sticker from the late seventies. The same one made famous on uh, class Florad's base. You can get that at the five, two, five store. Um, and yeah, five, two, five records.com five, two, five records, YouTube channel, slyrecords.com. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Ha, thank you. And anybody that knows me knows that I can talk, man. So yeah, it's been a pleasure. Love. Love.